Hello, Bizzlecast listeners. I am the Bizzle. And I'm Jedi Geeko from I Rebel. Welcome to the Star Wars Lorecast. Presented by the Bizzlecast. And may the Force be with us. No. Oh, do not. There is no try. Happy beat here, buddy. Come on. Copy that. We're almost there. You must have a thousand questions. Where's Ray? <laughs> Go away! What are you doing here? When I found you, I saw what all masters live to see. War. Untamed power. The tension of your bloodline. Jedi Order back. We need Luke Skywalker. The Bizzle! Jesse, aka The Bizzle. Oh, The Bizzle, thank you. <laughs> the Bizzle? Thank you, The Bizzle. Yeah. The Bizzle. All right, ladies and gentlemen of The Bizzle cast, welcome back to to the Bizzlecast presents the Star Wars Lorecast featuring, of course, Jedi Geek Girl of iRebel. And today we are doing the full-length audio commentary to 1999's Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, a movie I lost my mind over when it came out in 99, as I know Jedi Geek Girl did. Jedi Geek Girl, we want to get people into the podcast, but really quickly, welcome back, and I'm super pumped to do this. Thank you so much for having me back on, Biddle. I cannot wait to dive into this film because it is, it is such a talking point in fandom but it is historic and i am really looking forward to diving in so just a couple ground rules guys um and just let you know how this is going to work so um i mean jenna geek girl's kind of been leading with the play-by-play in the past uh commentaries uh, but be doing more so in this one while i talk more big picture stuff production leading up to it the hype the excitement um, as you guys know, I've really softened to the prequels over the years, and Revenge of the Sith keeps climbing up my list. Um, uh, in particular, I think the Phantom Menace, um, especially from a visual standpoint, holds up very, very well. As you guys know, I don't particularly like Attack of the Clones, but I am going to do that with Simi Kalimo at some point, mostly because he loves Natalie Portman, and there is some great stuff in there. Um, but this movie is undoubtedly fun and has that spirit of uh, Star Wars. And so Jedi Geeker, like I said, will be doing a lot of the play-by-play, and I'll be trying to come in with some little nuggets and factoids and so forth. So Jedi Geeker, before I get people into the countdown, any um, preliminary starting thoughts to The Phantom Menace? As I say a lot when I talk about The Phantom Menace, I think it is underappreciated for the groundwork that laid down in fandom as well as the moment that I had in the films. I think this is a film that people should at least listen to this podcast if they don't revisit the film because going back and revisiting it after a large period of time can definitely give you perspective. And if there's one thing I learned from rewatching a movie, which we'll get into our next podcast about is things can change and things can get better. And I am looking forward to it because 
the Phantom Menace is one of those films that I put not high up on my list, but one that I really do appreciate where it ranks right now. Speaking of movies you appreciate, Jedi Geek Girl rewatched Rogue One last night and really enjoyed it. And um, I believe our next Lorecast is going to be about revisiting Rogue One. So that should be super fun. We're also going to talk Ahsoka and the future of, of, um, of, of Ahsoka in her sort of universe. I will tease, guys, if you haven't seen Solo, I'll save the big spoiler for later on in this podcast. But I will say the, the big reveal at the end of Solo is very related to a lot of things going on in this movie and so that will come up and i will drop the spoiler warning at that point does that sound like a plan jgg it does yes all right so if you've done this before with me then you know how it works but i'll go through it really quickly you want to queue up your dvds digital files blu-rays whatever to zero hours zero minutes and zero seconds i'm going to count down from three to two to one i'm going to say the word go and when i say go you should hit play and it'll line up really nicely um and uh we're working off digital files here as far as i know this is the official version um, it is a digital file, um, so it might be one or two seconds behind you guys, but it, that's not a big deal, and I'm sure you know you can figure it out. As usual, I put subtitles if you're going silent. If you want to put a little ambient sound, I leave it up to you how you want to do that. Um, and we're going to have an absolute blast with this podcast because there's no doubt that we did not think or were sure that we were going to get more Star Wars after Return of the Jedi when I was two and Jedi Geek Girl wasn't even born yet. Um, and so it was an amazing experience and something I will talk about and she will as well. So JGG, you queued up? I am. All right. So I'm going to be projecting this on my big screen. Uh, so hopefully this will work pretty flawlessly. I did this with my Empire Strikes Back commentary. Work pretty well. So everyone get queued up. I'm going to give you a second and I'm going to lead you into the countdown. Just come back when you're ready. Okay, and just again, really quick, three to two to one, I'm going to say go, you hit play, and it'll be brilliant. So here we go, JGG. I'm really pumped for this. As am I. Okay. Here comes the countdown, guys. Three, two, one, go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So when you see this in the theater with the fanfare and the Lucasfilm and the 20th Century Fox in 1999, what are you thinking? At that point in time, I've been a fan of two years, so I wasn't too excited because I wasn't going off that suspense of not having a Star Wars for over 20 years. So... To me, it was just another film because I was so young and naive, so I didn't know the historic significance that theme had in 99. You're still young and naive, (laughs) and God bless you for it. Well, being naive and young is, you know, a blessing sometimes. Okay. So, one thing I want to distangle in this podcast is how much we can get out of the politics in the trade republic. That's always been a hard thing for me. Uh, what do you think about this opening uh, text here? 
I think it is very, it, it, it's a heavy text because yeah. when you're younger, when I was younger, you know, I was young and naive and I didn't understand the politics of it. So it was really complex to me. But going back and looking at it as an adult, I can understand it a lot more. And I think it is a unique concept because unlike the OT, the groundwork is a little bit more complex with politics. It's a little bit more real world, mm-hmm. real world-ish. But it is a new twist on mm-hmm. Star Wars. And, of course, by episode three, when we realize that Palpatine is manipulating Dooku, who's manipulating the Trade Federation, you realize it's all kind of a giant feint, which helps explain it. It definitely builds on how great Palpatine is and right. how he was able to pull the strings for so long. Love this ship design. Look at this blockade. Ugh. I do. I really enjoy this opening here. I think it fits like right into Star Wars, the original trilogy here. So I, I just want to get out really quickly. I don't particularly find the Trade Federation aliens offensive, but I know some people did racially. I don't want to go too far into it. I can definitely agree with you 100% there. I think there's cause for that. I haven't talked to anybody, but I'm open to the conversation, definitely. Like, why should line. having people with Asian accents be offensive? Oh, here we go. Battle droids. You know, I think battle droids are one of those creatures that was first introduced that everybody's like, oh, I don't care for them, but I think they really have grown onto the fandom. One of many things the Clone Wars made cooler and more interesting. And now we see the introduction of Qui-Gon and Kanan in their classic Jedi robes. Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan, thank you. And, you know, seeing this for the first time, we only seen Luke and Obi-Wan on the film dressed like this. So this was a very historic moment. And, of course, we see a young Obi-Wan Kenobi. Oh, my God. Who, he's so handsome. So, oh, he's so beautiful. And then we have Qui-Gon Jinn, or Qui-Gon Knows, if you will. But, yeah. And, by the way, this was before the Liam Neeson, you know, Taken revival with all his action movies. He hadn't done he had done Rob Roy, which is great. But he hadn't done anything like this in, in, uh, in a while. He also did that Holocaust film, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, Schindler's List, uh-huh. Yeah, so he was a pretty much an established actor before this. Uh, Ian McGregor, not so much. I mean, Liam Neeson is a legend. Ian McGregor in 2018 is almost there. Oh, yeah, 2018, yeah, but 99, he was no. pretty much an unknown, right? Can I make a quick comparison? Yeah, what, go ahead. What I love is you can tell the, Ewan McGregor, the actor, is incredible respect for Liam Neeson, which works great for their dynamic. And that's why I think um, uh, the dynamic between Obi-Wan and Anakin really kicks in great, sort of midway Attack of the Clones, but definitely Revenge of the Sith, when you can see Hayden Christensen's great respect for Obi-Wan really plays well. What I really like about this film when it comes to a young Kenobi is that you get to see Kenobi in such a different light. Like, this is not the mature Kenobi of the original trilogy. This is not the general of the original trilogy. This mm-hmm. is a younger Kenobi that has the angst of a young man, mm-hmm. which makes him a lot more real and less of a um, mysterious hermit. Okay, so first hypothetical. Do we think it was a great idea for them to reveal uh, Sidious slash Palpatine this early when we already kind of knew uh, that this was going to happen? Well, you got to remember when I first saw this, I did not know that was Palpatine. I didn't know that was Palpatine until like episode two. So. Yeah, that's old old man Brenner stuff. (laughs) 
I remember, you know, I was so young and naive. I didn't know that they were one and the same. Here we so, go. Killing people. Practical effects. Which P- there's a lot of in this film. Piece of trivia. This was the final Star Wars film ever to be a PG film. Attack of the Clones got a PG-13 and obviously Revenge of the Sith. I thought Revenge of the Sith was the first PG-13. I believe Attack of the Clones is, but I, you uh, let me double check that. And of course, right here, this is a very iconic scene where you see the droid coming out and mm-hmm. the gas or whatever and the battle droids here. Uh-huh. And then you see the two lightsabers, which is when you're young and you're seeing this for the first time, you're seeing Jedi at the peak of their ability that you don't really see in the original trilogy. So even though the scene was really brief, it captures your imagination as a young child coming off the original trilogy like I did. You're right. Attack of the Clones somehow with torture and death was PG. Yep. So for a long time, I always thought, well, this is great. They're just beating up lame droids. But as I always say with like the Avengers and Justice League and Star Wars, if you're going to have your heroes kill a bunch of people, it's got to be like robots or aliens, unfortunately. Yeah, you pretty much have to do that. And right now we're seeing Qui-Gon Jinn going into the door with his lightsaber, which I really appreciate. Go ahead. So point number one, why this with the lightsaber is already better than uh, The Force Awakens. You know I hate the fight against FN2199 with finn and that the lightsaber should slice right through that riot baton and we we knew the light what i like about this is he has to put some force into it to go through that thick wall but we know the lightsaber is going to go through it should be able to go through everything it's a freaking lightsaber it is definitely awesome seeing that for the very first time and something that we see over and over again in star wars that we didn't see before that really captured your imagination I, I love the battle droid designs. Very practical. Very powerful. Is the droidica thing, does that come from the Gungans? The droidicas? What What do you mean? Oh, no. Do you mean the Gungan shield? Don't, aren't I the battle droids also called droidicas, or are those different ones? Okay, so you have the B1, which are the battle droids on two legs, and then we have the droidicas, which are the rolling droids, and then we have the super battle droids, which we don't see until episode two. So, I love that line. The negotiations were short. So the frustrating thing about seeing the prequels initially... Oh, wait. Hold on. Look at this woman. Mm-hmm. Introduction of Queen Amidala. She is 17 during filming here. The character herself is 14. It's absolutely amazing that this George Lucas... You know, George Lucas has always been a proponent of younger generation that's why he started off on a young anakin and of course a young padme and how he was originally going to have a younger mm-hmm. child be the star of the sequel trilogy and luke mm-hmm. is sort of young but you know can can i can i make a quick uh tribal uh thing which is it's really interesting the first two main princesses and the first two main trilogies uh both jewish and both super young yes Yes, I did not know that they were both Jewish. I mean, Natalie Portman is full Israeli Jewish. Carrie Fisher's Jewish on her dad's side, but still. Okay, okay. 
I'm not saying that was a reason. It's just bizarre considering we're 2% of the population. No, I, I, I didn't even know that that had it in con- common. That's pretty awesome. So okay. when you first saw this film, did you know that Sidious and Palpatine was one and the same? Oh, or? yeah. yeah. I, I, had no, I, I knew from the beginning. Did you know through spoilers or did you just put two and two together? I mean, you see him with the cloak talking like this from Sidious. It's like clearly Palpatine. Okay, okay. So I was young and naive that I didn't notice that. Do you do you believe in ideal scenario people starting from the beginning should watch in totally chronological order in terms of the timeline, or do you believe in sort of the artistic version of jumping around? I think I personally believe in release date order, so you can see the evolution of the storytelling through filmmaking. chronological is the the, the different experience and once you experience it one way for the first time you can't experience it the other way for the first time if you know what i mean can i just say you can tell this is late 90s but it's only a half step below especially like last jedi and in rogue one and force awakens like that's how good this looks yeah, I, it definitely aged a lot better than the film that comes after it. Yep. This. So anyways, I was saying the thing that's so frustrating about the prequels on initial watchings, but over time is great, is the fact that all of this is bullshit. The Trade Federation, Dooku, even Maul, it's all trying to throw people off the scent. The force is clouded with Sidious. And like I said, it builds Palpatine, which makes him fantastic. And one of the colors in this film is green. Look at all this green. These animals don't look much worse than the Fatiars. No, no, but we don't really focus on them like we do a Fabier. Okay, guys, but I'm yeah. going to be honest. I have, I have had an up and down relationship with the prequels over the years. I have never had a problem with Jar Jar. It, it it's not that I love him and he makes me laugh all the time, but he's such a Star Wars alien, and I I I think people channeled the same way they're channeling hatred to Kelly Marie Tran for Last Jedi. People channeled their hatred uh, and, and you know being upset towards Jar Jar is totally irrational. He is an easy target. Whether he deserves it or not, he's an easy target. And I echo what you just got done saying because I was younger, so I never really got annoyed by him and a lot of people forget that he was the first cgi character in a role that he's in he looks Gollum, good. he looks really he gets good. that status as a icon but jar jar came first for better or for worse like him or hate him he was first well the difference is Gollum's a much subtle character but also Gollum was the first time they had the actor do literally everything this is partially motion capture partially pure cgi pure cgi still looks good Oh, yeah, that's true, 100%. And I think they did a really good job. I think there are a few moments where you can tell, like, he's not actually there. But there are a couple moments when it works, works just well. Like, it transitioned mm-hmm. just nice. Like, like when Jar Jar spins his head and Obi-Wan ducks, mm-hmm. you know? So and Look, the thing that makes Jar Jar the most appealing is that his race that's banished him, the Gungans, are extremely noble and cool aliens. And his main role is connecting them to the Gungans, and ultimately the Gungans help save all of them. So, can I throw a theory away? Mm-hmm. I think 
that Jaja is the most relatable, realistic character in a sense that everybody can relate to being clumsy and being looked down upon for things that are completely out of their control. I love this, by the way. All you need to breathe underwater is a little mouth thing is great. Yes. And by the way, guys, Jar Jar, not racist, played by a black theater actor who was channeling a bunch of different dialects from different African-American and Latino-American countries. And I'm sorry. It's just I, I don't find him racist or offensive. Like I, Same like with this Trade Federation. He also is a frog, basically. Mm-hmm. That I think that's a lot of things that people overlook is that the Gungans are supposed to be like frogs. Mm-hmm. And I love this technology here. Like, one of my favorite things about episode one is the imagery. Like, regardless of what you think of the acting or the characters or the story, look at the background. Look at the imagery. Like, it just captures your imagination. The number one complaint by people who love the original trilogy and love the prequels and are so-so on the new movies is that the universe in the prequels feels extremely big because of all the planet and and habitat hopping that they do. Um, It's hard to disagree with that. I, I, I love the scope that the prequel trilogy had in the sense that the original trilogy was really focused on a set of characters and the prequel trilogy changes that. Okay, I, I have to ask. This movie looks fantastic. Revenge of the Sith looks fantastic. What happened with Attack of the Clones? You don't have to answer this now. Were they saving their money for Revenge of the Sith? or they overspent on Phantom Menace? Because there's a huge drop to Attack of the Clones, and then it goes way up for Revenge of the Sith. Do you want an answer now? Or? No, I just, let's throw it out there. We'll discuss it later if there's a, a, a break. Oh, yeah, sure. Love Boss Nass. Always love this guy. Mm-hmm. He's a very unique character, and I love how much he looks differently than the other Gungans. A, like, I'm, so, I'm sorry, but like, not giving aliens accents is just as racist as giving aliens accents, if not worse. Like, this is a world we live in, and, and it's not, they're blending different accents. I just I don't find it offensive. I didn't then. I don't now. So... Getting to what is on screen, you notice that Qui-Gon Jinn is using the mind trick on Boss Na- Boss Nass? Very subtle. Very subtle. I, I, I noticed that before. I'm like, okay, so that just goes to show you that Boss Nass is weak-minded. Mm-hmm. And it's very subtle. You Unless you're looking for it, you're not going to notice it. You know, I just noticed with that close-up of Boss Nass was he looks like the real 3d version of a clone wars design like you can already see the aesthetic of the clone wars with these early alien designs it's great and we're going to see qui-gon jinn do another mind trick here in a second if you look down well not yet but soon punished Yeah, he definitely. You can definitely take him and put in the Clone Wars, and he would fit perfectly. Mm-hmm. He, see, there's a mind trick. Mm-hmm. So you know how I talk about how Donald Glover partially stole the Solo movie by not stealing it and yielding when he could have easily stolen scenes. 
Mm-hmm. I, I partially think Ewan McGregor is like that in this movie, which is why his ferocious climactic battle against Maul at the end is so affecting because he's kind of laying back in the cut, as we say, deferring to Qui-Gon. But when it comes time for him to step forward, he is just awesome. I agree 100%. And a young Kenobi, the young Kenobi that we get in this film makes me curious of seeing more material featuring this young Kenobi because obviously Mm -hmm. with the Clone Wars, we got more of that Kenobi. Mm -hmm. This version of Kenobi, him as an apprentice, it's like, okay, I I want more of this Kenobi because when you're young, you're pretty much like a different person. I would just like to point out that in 1999 and 2002-2005 with the movies... First of all, they had three years between movies. Kathleen Kennedy has one year or less between movies. But also, the budgets on the paper are basically the same. (laughs) But because of inflation, the budgets on these movies are basically double what the current budgets are. So, they're working with amazing budgets and technology here. Look at this. Yeah, it, it definitely, like, nothing looks out of place here to me. So let me, what's your overall, there's always a bigger fish, this whole thing here. It's clearly not necessary, but it's beautiful and it does teach a lesson. Uh, What did you think of this? Do you remember what you thought of this when you first saw it or on subsequent viewings? When I first saw it, I think the imagery really stuck with me. It was like, wow, this is beautiful. It's scary. It's freaky. I didn't really think deep and philosophical about it, but I think... Go ahead. I just realized the one thing we haven't talked about solo because we love the the the, the pergiel was the unbelievably giant space whale thing during the Kessel Run. Yeah. It's yep. Awesome. I mean, look at him. It's clearly <laughs> Palpatine. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, to me, I never really- to me, remember, remember, I had watched Empire and Return of the Jedi probably a hundred times a piece before seeing this. So, yeah, and and I only was familiar with the franchise for two years. Yes, I did watch the original trilogy over and over again, but when you grow up, you get to see things that you watch over and over again, like watching these films over and over again. Even now, I'm discovering new things, even in the original trilogy. You- so. You knew Vader was Anakin was Vader, right? Oh, of, of course I did. Well, you know? no, because I, I, you see videos of like little kids watching the prequels for the first time, and they get the Vader reveal, and they start crying. <laughs> well, I watched I watched the original trilogy over and over again for two years before the uh, prequel trilogy, so what, I knew. What was the catalyst, if I may ask you, for the two years before this? What what triggered it? I was bored, and I used to watch a lot of VHSs that my mother had, and eventually I discovered Star Wars, and I watched it, and I watched it over and over again. I don't really remember my first time. So I love J.J. Abrams' Star Trek Trek reboot, uh, Force Awakens. I love Rogue One. But when you look at some of the monsters in um, Star Trek Reboot and you look at the Rathtars and you look at the Borgullet, they've had some trouble with weird-looking aliens. And they never seem to really have trouble with them, uh, at least in Episode 1 and 3. No, and like I said before, the imagery in this film is really striking. Like the bright Naboo here, look at this. Oh, 
Look how gorgeous it looks. Dude, Battlefront 2 playing Leia in Naboo. Forget about it. Yep. 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 Yeah, I, I remember. Yeah. So, two things about Natalie Portman. One, she gets to kick the most ass. And I don't just mean shooting people. She gets to be the awesomest in this movie, um, in my opinion. Um, but also, I, I, think my, I think George Lucas's biggest regret in regards to Padme has to be not... Like, everyone thinks of Luke and Leia as Anakin's kid. I wish it was more immediate that people would also think of them as Padme's kid. I know you and I do, but yeah, I don't know. The thing about Padme in this film is this basically is her film. She's basically the main character. She's the one that goes through the growth. She's the one who leads the mission and succeeds. She's the one that overcomes the obstacle of the suppression of her people. I'm going to say it right now. There is not a single shot of Natalie Portman in costume, in makeup, or just regular Padme that she does not look stunning in three movies. Oh, yeah. She's beautiful people, which I love to talk about. That bald guy, not so much, but I can't see his face. So when did you realize the Padme Amidala double switch thing? Uh, The first time I see it, not until it happened. I think I knew in the back of my head what was going on, but they did build enough misdirection that I was willing to go along with it. For our listeners, how old were you when Um, you first watched? I was uh, a junior in high school. I was about 16 or 17. But we were dressed up. We had lightsabers and robes and the whole thing. See, so I wasn't even a teenager yet when it came out yet. So I was still young and naive. So I was able to experience this film without any of that experience of the star wars film and franchise so yep so the one thing this movie suffers from which again people you have to think back to the original trilogy and accept the truth and the original trilogy and parts of the prequels a lot of the side characters are either not great actors or just over deliver their lines and so forth but that's just part of the lucas aesthetic you just got to go with it it definitely adds a unique charm to the franchise that I don't think too many other franchises have. Yeah, but when you get Paige and Tally in Last Jedi and you get all the side characters in Rogue One, you realize it's it's better when you give them some real personality. Oh, I agree 100%. Uh, I'm talking about this is the Lucasfilm school, uh, not uh, the Lucasfilm of thought. Or, you know, I, I will give Lucas film. credit for recently revealing his original plans for the sequels and admitting that people would probably hate it. That shows that he's gaining some uh, self-awareness, uh, which is great. Uh, yeah. And in my opinion, I think he's going to be one of those individuals that is not going to be fully respected. Uh, obviously, he was flawed until he passes. Like a, what is his name? H.G. Wells? I think George Lucas is worshipped by many. I think the the cult of Lucas is part of the problem, thinking that only he can make good movies. I think, though, if he didn't sell to Disney, I think he would just, you know, popular opinion would have just kept decreasing. Which is kind of ironic when you look yeah. at the fandom in general, but... Yeah. He's like, hey, no. I'll take the $4 billion and give it to Kathleen Kennedy. Okay, here we go. This looks great. No, what I really appreciate the prequels is when the lightsabers connect, 
they actually look like they connect and they're cutting through things. Mm-hmm. And the lighting, too. Like, the lightsabers actually have a more solid color. I know that in New Hope, uh, as part of the special edition, I actually like this guy here. He looks like an old-school rebel. Um, I, I know that in New Hope, Lucas tweaked the lightsabers a little bit with Obi-Wan and, and Vader, but I don't think he changed too much in Empire Jedi, but I don't know that for sure. Oh, no, but um, as much as I was saying how I enjoyed the lightsabers in the prequel trilogy, Episode Five. It's very iconic. And episode 6, too. Those are iconic things. This is just a different slight tweak on the lightsaber. No, I I just meant physically, if you look at the original 1977 cut, the lightsabers look really janky. We're not used to that. Oh, yeah. They still kind of do, like, in the training room Mm -hmm. scene. And we see the first introduction of R2-D2. So when you first saw the film, what were you thinking when when you first saw R2-D2? So... Everyone is so impressed by L3 and the Robot Rebellion, but I've been reading about Robot Rebellion since I was a kid in all sorts of literature. Uh, but that being said, in the Star Wars universe, after L3 and, and to a certain extent K2SO, when you see these guys being slaves and being ordered to their deaths, it is a little disturbing, even though while you respect them for being heroic. So back to the question that I asked you before, when you first saw this, when yeah. you first saw this film, what did you think of the introduction of R2-D2? I was pumped. I know, it was definitely probably a fan moment. Because, you know, he saved the day like R2-D2 does. There are three people that will always save you, that will always get you out of trouble, and that you never get you into trouble. Mm-hmm. BBA, R2-D2, and Chewbacca. Mm-hmm. Can I can I can I bring in a quick solo and rogue one comparison here real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Which is, you know, I've been talking a lot about different ways of portraying nostalgia, and one reason I love Rogue One is they're not throwing expositional nostalgia in your face, whereas in Solo at times, it's like, here's how you got the name Solo, here's how we got the name Chewie, like Rogue One doesn't really do that, and Solo, to its credit, you know, doesn't normally do that, but it does do some, and I think the nostalgic references in this movie uh, work best when it's like seeing R2 for the first time, as opposed to like explaining why Anakin was born from the forest, but we'll get to that. Oh, spoil. Yep. Okay, guys, here it is. Spoiler alert. Darth Maul is alive. Well, after this and appears at the end of Han Solo. Yes, he does. And now we go back to the beginning of the introduction of Maul. Are these guys fully CGI? They look partially practical. The trade Federation. Oh, no, they're practical. So, he goes all practical effects in this movie as much as possible. Looks great. Attack of the Clones is pure CGI, and then he strikes a nice balance in Sith. So, the Phantom Menace has more practical effect in it than The Force Awakens. But J.J. Abrams said real sets practical effects. (laughs) He was also, that was also a marketing ploy, but I think people overlooked the fact that The Phantom Menace had a lot of practical effects compared to, obviously, the films that came after it, as well as The Force Awakens. I also think J.J. Know, felt strong enough in his command of both that people wouldn't 
No, necessarily. Which I, I, I kind of respect the mischievousness of that, but yeah. Yeah. Who's that? Are you that? Oh my god. So, you know me. I love my beautiful Star Wars women. Dirty and hair all over the place. Normal looking girls. Jin, Rail, Ruffled. I mean, Amidala is stunning. But Padme as Padme is just irresistible. She's so adorable. So it took you 30 minutes to bring up Jim. Jin, I believe that is the record. <laughs> so, gee, I, I, I just don't get the problems with Jar Jar. He doesn't bug me. Not at all. I, I actually like I think the speech that he has is it, unique. Yep. You know what I'm saying? I well, think if there's one thing I don't like about Jar Jar, mm-hmm. it's when he steps in Bonta Voodoo. And this... By the way, the shiny the ship here. And the gas. I used to hate the shiny ship. I love the shiny ship now. It makes total sense in the galactic situation they're in right now. Yeah, the num Naboo is a well-off planet. You know, it's a very wealthy planet, so of course they're going to have the wealth. So you know, obviously, it, it, you know, it, it, it's. It, it, it's not super hidden that the fall of the Republic mirrors the fall of the Roman Empire, right? And so mm-hmm. at the height of the Roman Empire, everything was beautiful and shiny, and then the barbarians came to the gates, and then there was emperors and repression and so forth. Uh, and I think that's part of what's being conveyed here by the sort of perfection of, of the ships and the costumes and everything. Agreed, and that is what Lucas was going for. He was trying to make it, because the original trilogy is a lived-in universe that is dirty, and, you know, this has been a universe that's been around for a long time, but the prequel trilogy takes place in an era where everything is well, you know, the Mm -hmm. government hasn't collapsed, you know, people aren't put into poverty because of a... Of an empire, you know what I'm saying? So, while it might be not quote-unquote Star Wars because it doesn't fit the visual imagery, it's different because it's a different period in time because of different circumstances. So, and here we go. Montefudu. Okay, two quick things, Jedi Geek Girl. Yeah. One, clearly my, the part of the movie I have the most trouble with is from here until they're fighting Darth Maul outside the ship after the pod race. Um, but two... Tatooine looks amazing, but why, you know, after the prequels, we learn they hide Luke Skywalker where Anakin Skywalker grew up. I still don't understand. So this was touched upon in the expanded canon, especially in the Darth Vader series. You mean the old canon? (laughs) Nope, nope. Expanded canon. You know, I call the... Legends. I call... Nope, no, 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 no. I say expanded canon to refer to the newer stuff in the books and the canon. I call the older stuff legends. But anyways, into newer books and comics. Yeah. I'll do it that way. In the newer comic series, it is actually touched upon because after the Death Star blew up, Vader went back to Tatooine to find out about his son. Because he knew that Luke Skywalker came from Tatooine and he Mm -hmm. found out that Luke was his son. And he's like, Obi-Wan was right to hide him here because he knew I would never come here. By the way, baller pickup line to a check. Are you an angel? How many times did it work for you? I don't have the guts. (laughs) 
can I, can I give you my main theory about the Anakin Padme relationship throughout the three that I would have done slightly different? Yeah, go for it. I never, I always, you know how I, I, I say that Kylo is kind of obsessed with Ray. Ray is fascinated with Kylo, but doesn't really like him like that. I kind of think they should have done something similar with Anakin where he was sort of obsessed with her and she liked him as a friend and they, she did have sort of a weak night in episode three and they slept together and got pregnant, whatever. But the, the whole her falling in love with him, I never quite bought. I think it would have been interesting to go a little darker of him kind of obsessed with her and her never quite coming to him uh, for the most part. I think that is definitely an interesting thing that you present because we talked about it in the past, but I got one to throw your way yeah. here. What do you think? You know how Kylo Ren is obsessed with Ray? Yes. Do you think that that is an echo of what we see with Anakin yes. and his sort of obsession with Panami? Yeah. I, I think I think that Kylo is a somewhat better um, realized version of what Lucas was trying to do with Anakin. And, you know, when you're doing it the second time with 10 years of hindsight, it's a lot easy. Uh, the Jedi tricks don't work on me. Um, yeah. And on the flip end, I lo- you know, we talked about this before. I really love Kylo. But I think without the prequel trilogy, Anakin, I don't think we would have forgotten the Kylo Ren no. that we have. No. And J.J. can say whatever he wants, but they clearly cast Adam Driver, cut his hair a certain way, and had him act a certain way to reflect his grandfather. There's no question. Which I really love. I mean, do you remember when the when the main Last Jedi trailer dropped and there's that shot of Anakin from the back? Uh, I'm sorry, Kylo from the back. I, I saw a bunch of fan reactions watching that in Last Jedi being like, is that Anakin? Like, people actually thought it was Anakin. That's how close it is. Yeah, I think I did too. I think there was a moment where I was like, wait a second, this, you know, so I really like that. So let me say this about Jake Lloyd. When he's able to just act like a little boy where he's like, I'm glad to meet you too. Are you an angel? I really like. He's awesome in the pod race. I think the biggest problem is when they ask him to be melodramatic with the lines that are even difficult for adults to deliver that it, he has trouble. But that's, you know, that's like anyone, you know? I mean... Uh, for his age and the pressure, we won't go into the fallout from this movie, from his character, but for all my minor nitpicks with Jake Lloyd, I don't think any of them have to do with his performance. It's usually writing or how it's framed. For all the criticism that he gets, I think that with him being as young as he was, I think he connected with a lot of people who were close to that age because to try to promote my podcast, we talked about the Phantom Menace, and the guess who I had, who I had on was actually close to this age. So he was able to connect with Jake Floyd, which is something Lucas did. Who was the guest with intention? Uh, he was uh, Kevin from Jackman Games. I like the Jackman Games guys. I like him. Yes, yes, he's the one that like Jin. Yep. So, and we see Sababa here. Great character. He is. Like. So you don't want to mess with him. I, the pod race is completely divided between the people who found it thrilling and exactly what they wanted to see, and the people who say narratively it's totally worthless. I could argue both of those points, but mostly I think it's thrilling. But it is split. I do like it because sometimes you need a visual orgasm. You need something that you really enjoy on the screen that isn't too much yep. of a relevant to the so, plot because. 
it okay. takes the film to the next level. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. I'm going to give you right now my only two problems with young Anakin. I'm going to get out of the way and I won't say it again. So, you know how Han starts as a driver and a flyer before he's a pilot? Yes. The whole Anakin was a great pilot when he was a kid would have been totally sold fine with the pod racing and maybe some low atmosphere flying. Anakin flying the starship at the end, how does his feet even reach the pedals? It seems impossible. So that I don't understand. And you know me, the biggest problem is not the midichlorians, but the holy birth of Anakin from the Force, which I'll try not to linger on too long because it's not that important in the big picture. Those are my only two big problems with Anakin. Otherwise, I'm fine with the performance. May I address the first part? Of I know you've addressed it, but you can address it again when it happens. Okay, yeah, I can do that. We'll, we'll bring it up. Yeah, and uh, Oh, look at that old woman. She recently passed away like Aww. six months ago. She you know what she reminds me of? Do you remember the beginning of Force Awakens when Ray is looking at old woman scrubbing the thing and she's yeah. thinking of herself as like an 80 yep. year old? Yep. I wonder if that was intentional. I really like the imagery here because I just got done watching A New Hope here and the Tatooine that we see here is different but it's similar. Like you can mm-hmm. tell this is Tatooine. Can I, can I start bringing the Clone Wars super quickly here? I, I, this woman is, is very charismatic and has an interesting accent. I'm not a big fan of her, uh, you know, overall, whatever, and this weird thing with, with Qui-Gon, whatever. Okay, let me just bring in the Clone Wars real quick. So, in the Clone Wars, Lucas made two major adjustments, which was making Anakin a little bit more noble and likable, even if he had a dark side, and making Padme more active and uh, sort of proactive and, you know, doing stuff. So why don't you think he did that more in the uh, in the prequel trilogy when he clearly had that in mind for the characters? I think it had to do with the fact that there wasn't a supportive cast around him to do that, like David Filoni was with The Clone Wars. But clearly Natalie Portman is is capable of being the Padme that we see in The Clone Wars. Oh, I agree 100%, but you also got, we also got to remember that at this point in time, there was a bunch of, I hate to use this phrase, yes-men around George Lucas. He didn't have somebody mm-hmm. to refine his ideas and really test him. It's like, hey, no, you know, they're, they're shooting a scene. Let's say this scene right now, and I'm sure they did a couple of takes, but everybody's like, yeah, no, that's good. And so be like, hey, why don't we try that again? You know what I'm saying? Why don't you try it this way or... Mm-hmm. You know, I think he had yes men around him, which is something that you see in a lot of franchises as it, as they get older. Like it's I think just one of the it's bizarre because George Lucas resisted yes men in the original trilogy. I'm not sure why older George Lucas had problems with that. I do want to say, by the way, though, I think more than the pod racing and the starship fighting, the fact that Anakin can not only build droids but live consciousness AI is the most impressive thing. And, and they should have just stopped there. He didn't need to fly, fly starfighters. But okay, I'm gonna let it go. But anyways, what I was going to say is the analogy with George Lucas that I think a lot of people have made is uh, Citizen Kane. You know, the young, idealistic young man who becomes a bitter old man who becomes the industry that he fought against. I'm sorry. Basically can st- sum up Lucas. I-, I love the Citizen Kane reference. You really didn't realize this was the same guy when you saw it? No. Hmm. I, you know, I-, I was young, you know? I, I didn't even discover, mm-hmm. you know, relationships yet. 
By the way, as I mentioned in a recent podcast, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making Ian McDermott look a thousand years older 40 years ago than he looks now. <laughs> I think it's really cool that awesome. he played a character in 99 that he played in 83, mm-hmm. like 30 years or mm-hmm. yeah, 20, almost but, 30 years younger. Sorry, just to focus in here. Do you see how Jake Lloyd's just acting like a little boy here? This is when he's, he shines. I think the problem with Lucas is he's known as a hands-off director. So when the chemistry is going great, it's going great. And, and honestly, Jedi Geek Girl, I think young Anakin and young Padme have better chemistry than Padme and Anakin in two and three, honestly. I can agree with you. Uh, yeah, I can agree with you. Yeah, I can go with that. Like, I don't think Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman got along, um, but we'll get back to that in a different podcast. Yeah, we, we can talk about it because my plan Ooh, is to do laser all the sword. I yeah, love this. Perhaps I killed a Jedi and took it from him. <laughs> what I really love about Qui-Gon Jinn is his relationship with Anakin Skywalker. Also, I hate that Qui-Gon's the Force Ghost Discoverer. That makes no sense. Whatever. Mm. Yoda's been around a thousand years. Yoda should discover it. Mm. Look at Natalie. Oh my god. By the way, what Natalie's like, braids, not a, not, not a coincidence. Sorry. What I like about this scene is watching Jaja in the background. I noticed myself doing that a lot lately. When I watch something, I tend to watch the characters in the background to see how they react and stuff I like mean, that. If you like the Porgs doing funny things in the background in Last Jedi, but not Jar Jar doing a little comic relief, it, it's just a matter of degrees, you know? I mean, it's really not that different. Yeah, it's just it's just different humor. Yep. And you see all she do too in the background. But you know me, the cute, the, the the small amount of cuteness in various manifestations of Star Wars has never been something that's bothered me, from Ewoks to Porgs to Gungans. Even Anakin here, he's so young. Why do you think they cast like a Swedish woman to be his mom? I have I I, I don't I have no idea. I mean, imagine if they cast, like, Glenn Close or Meryl Streep. They could have gotten them. Maybe they wanted to go for somebody that didn't, couldn't steal the scene off the star power. I really wouldn't mind in her short scenes, especially with the chemistry they're trying to build with Qui-Gon. Uh, I mean, let's put it this way. Liam Neeson can act uh, across all sorts of middle-aged Academy Award-winning women and hold his own. That's true. I mean, it's fine. She's very sweet and likable. I just never quite understood her vibe. I think she's unique. She definitely seems like she fits into that role of somebody who has been a slave, who is honest and loving. And All right, so... 
In episode four, me and Simi asked, when did Obi-Wan know that Luke's parents were going to die and see the path and did he let it happen in the prophecy? In episode five, my Empire commentary, I asked, when Yoda says to Luke, don't go save your friends, come finish your training, I think Yoda is actually manipulating Luke to leave um, because as soon as Luke comes back and returns to the Jedi, he's like, yep, you're a Jedi now, basically. Um, however... Do you think that Qui-Gon doesn't fight harder to free his mom because he thinks it's the better thing for Anakin to separate him from his mom? Yes, I think he believes that he was doing the right thing. By the way, shameless political plug, support Natalie Portman online right now, helping immigrant children uh, who are stuck at the border because of our fucking stupid president. Go, Natalie. Yeah, that is a, a rat nest, but yeah. She's uh, Pernilla August, born 1958 in Stockholm. See, you see the performance of Nian Leeson. He, he totally owns the role of Qui-Gon Jinn. And I hope someday that we get more material with the character because he's definitely one of those characters that I think for the most part everybody likes. Except for people who played the Empire in Destiny with all his shield powers. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's no longer as good, but he's, yeah. Okay, so... You know, Watto says we'll roll the die and Obi, um, and Qui-Gon affects the die. And earlier, Watto said, oh, what are you, a Jedi trying to mind trick me? I have to think he didn't actually think that Qui-Gon was trying to mind trick him because if he really thought he was a Jedi, then he would be suspicious of the dice roll as well. That's my only thing I can come up with. Well, what I got it from that scene is that Watto knew that Qui-Gon manipulated the die. By the way, mirroring here, there's something about this boy, um, Maz Kanata, who's the girl, um, you know, Kylo Ren, force choking the guy, what girl, you know, people mm -hmm. having a feeling for, for the strong force. And you know what I noticed, by the way, in my rewatch of Empire Jedi Geek Girl? I thought Vader was the one who had the inkling that Luke was his son, but it, it, Empire, actually, the Emperor is the one who says it. it may, even if Vader has a sense of it, the Emperor is the one who says it's the child of Skywalker. I much prefer the Snoke-Kylo version, where both Snoke and Kylo sense the awakening at the same time. I don't know how you feel about that. I think it is a unique take. I know that in Legends and in Canon, Vader knew that Luke was his son before the Emperor are, said it. Are the comics that take place between f uh, 4 and 5 canon? Oh, yeah. The, the new ones, yeah, they're canon. Because Luke confronts Vader. I thought Vader detected then that it was his son, but maybe not. No, so what happened is, and I don't want to spend too much time here, is that Luke and Vader fight. And in that fight, Vader got a hold of Luke's lightsaber, and he recognized the lightsaber. So, after the fight, he hired Boba Fett to look into this boy from Tatooine, this Luke Skywalker. And Boba Fett discovered that he was his son. 
And in the next story arc of the Vader series, Vader confirmed that by digging up the grave of Natalie Portman and her mortician to confirm that fact. Okay, can I ask you a big philosophical question? Yeah, go for it. So, what made Luke Skywalker, and even Princess Leia, being both around 19, but especially Luke Skywalker, original trilogy, what made him so appealing to little boys was that he was slightly older than us, but he still acted like a little boy. He was kind of whiny. He had, like, toy ships. He was always like, oh, I want to get off this planet. I want to get out of here. We didn't need someone who was our age. So why did Lucas think the new hero of the new movie needed to be a little boy when Luke Skywalker did the job amazingly as, like, a late teen? I think it has to do with a shift of his perspective. You know, this the when he started the draft of episode one, it was 20 years later. This is great, by the and, way. Sorry, the, this is one of the better Jar Jar moments, and cause Natalie trying to get his hand out is great. Yeah, I, I think this is one of the better Jar Jar moments where he gets his tongue numb. numb. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's one of the moments that the humor actually connects. But I guess what I'm saying is, it's not a coincidence that they went back to young men and women like Ray and Finn to be the heroes of the new trilogy. Oh no, that, that you know, that they wanted to do that so the characters could connect with a wider variety of the audience. And I think perhaps that's one of the things about episode one that okay. people got disconnected about was that the main, mm-hmm. you know, Anakin was so young. Okay. All right, Jedi Geek Girl. You might be shocked to know that on many years of review, not only do I have zero problem with the notion of midichlorians, but I actually like it. And But this is also related to my acceptance that time travel might exist, to my acceptance that the laws of physics exist. I like a little science in my science fiction Star Wars. And the idea that the midichlorians are this harmless bacteria that's attracted to the Force, but not actually the Force itself, makes total sense to me, and I am more than cool with. Your thoughts? I want to say, and I don't want to draw on it too much, that I think the whole situation with the Minicolians is a bit of a misunderstanding. Again, when I first, and I want to say this over and over again, when I first saw this film, it was two years into my fandom, so I didn't have this history with the Force, and I never had a problem because I never had time for that conflict to happen. And I think that they work in together. I don't see a conflict, and I think it actually helps the Jedi because it goes to show you that ignorance. And what I really like about the prequel trilogy is we see a Jedi, we see Jedi at the height of their power, that they're Mm -hmm. so ignorant that they lose sight of the spiritual aspect of the religion. Yes, it's a religion that they are practicing, that they are looking into science. Okay, so for me... And again, this is colored by the Clone Wars and Sam Witwer's portrayal of Maul and so forth. But for me, Maul is the opposite of Boba Fett because they're both initially loved because of their look and their menacingness and and their fighting and whatever. But Maul always seemed to have substance behind him. And so Mm -hmm. when they brought him back and expanded him with Sam Witwer doing the voice in the animated series, it made so much more sense. 
And my friend Tim Jirasi tried to argue that Boba Fett got so much more complicated in the Clone Wars, and I just don't see it. Maul really does it for me. You know, we're watching that scene there with Maul, and Maul looks like a B.A. He, I agree with you 100%. He's better than Boba Fett, and we're talking about the films only here, for my example here. And basically watching that scene, I'm like, okay, Yes, I, I really do like him because unlike Boba Fett, you know, he actually fights and he actually kills somebody. Mm-hmm. So I also think if you're not willing to show your face in combat, you're a coward. And that's Kylo's dirty secret. That's Vader's dirty secret. Um, yeah. And, you know, and Kylo. And that's why Snoke wisely tells Kylo to get rid of the mask. So remember that no pot is worth two slaves. Can I bring up a Jewish thing here? People yeah, have described Wado as a stereotypical Jewish uh, Eastern European. I don't know any Jew from any part of the world that talks or sounds like this. And so actually the offensive part to me is that people see him as a big nosed Jew when I just see an alien with a weird accent. So the, 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 the idea that he's, you know, like a Jewish stereotype is actually more offensive than what's going on. Sorry. No. So uh, if you see that scene right there, you mm-hmm. can tell that Wado knows. You know, even though he doesn't see it happen, he knows. But but I, I don't want to get you too deep in this, but just in general, like, you know, sometimes when you say something's a stereotype, it can be more offensive than what's actually going on because, y- y- you know what I mean? You're reading into it to, uh, to a certain degree. Um, no, I, I completely agree with you. I didn't mean to no, no, no. not address, but yeah, I, I agree with you. But, you know, if anybody can speak about it, it would be you. But, so. but I'm saying I never sensed it. Like, from the beginning and after all the criticisms, I, I still don't see it. He he does talk a little bit Eastern European, but that's it. Can, can I, you know, I didn't know that until you brought it up, that that was a criticism that yeah. some people Yeah, people have. say Watto's because he's greedy, he's got a big nose, he's a merchant, all, the, all these old Jewish European stereotypes. Oh my God, look at Natalie Portman acting the shit out of nothing there. Mm-hmm. And see, did you notice the alien in like the spaceship type costume, which is a throwback to A New Hope? Those aliens. I gotta say, Jedi Geek Girl, everything we've seen so far, CGI and practical wise, has looked fantastic. Mm-hmm. It looks a lot better than the special editions, which was only two years before then. Oh, way better. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Tatooine looks way more real than the version they tried to put on in 1997 or whatever. Mm-hmm. I agree. And what I really like about the Tatooine of the Phantom Menace is, like I said before, you can tell it's mm-hmm. Tatooine. So do you know what I think Lucas was trying to do with the two-headed announcers, actually? Go for it. So you watch sports, right? Um, oh, you watch no. baseball. You watch baseball. No, not really. Okay, you're a Cubs fan. Yeah, but I don't watch okay. it. But anyways, go anyways, ahead. Anyways, you've seen a football game or a baseball game before. You have, you have, and we do this here. We have the play-by-play person, who's you, and then we have the color commentator, who's me. But they're usually just parroting each other and saying the same thing over and over again. I think that was sort of the implication here. I don't know. 
Interesting. And of course, we're seeing the introduction of all the pod races, which is coming to Star Wars Destiny in the next set, Ways of the Force. Plug. So, I love how they introduce... Notice I didn't mention Jen. I didn't mention Jen when you said the new Destiny. I didn't say anything. No, but you said you mentioned her 30 minutes in, so you already covered your Jen thing. So, you still yet have to have a Jengasm, but... You know, there's time for it. It's not like that. It's a deeper connection. <laughs> hey, it is. You know, there's nothing wrong with some gin talk, but I love the like all the different flags representative of each one of the races. Is this real? It does. <laughs> okay, here's another joke that I don't really care for. But um, would the flags hey, is that uh, rooted in real life? So. Guys, if you don't realize that you need some Star Wars cheese, then you don't understand Star Wars. But the difference is the Star Wars cheese that you make fun of because it's bad, like like you say people going to die or whatever, and, you know, uh, I love you, I know, or rebellions are built on hope, which is great Star Wars cheese. Wouldn't you agree that's a fine line between sort of classic Star Wars cliched lines and, and ones that are a little over the top, maybe? Yeah, I can agree with that. I love it. You know, it's kind of funny because I kind of enjoy the youth expressions that Anakin does, like a woo and the yippee, you know? Those are things that little boys say. You know, I had two brothers that I grew up with, so... Something I've never had a problem with is from here to the end of the race with him. He absolutely kills it in a CGI green screen pod racing situation. By the way, Jabba looking a thousand times better than the special edition of A New Hope right here. Yep, yep. But I don't know what Lucas, again, who doesn't do much direction, maybe he was working more with Jake Lloyd, he really looks in it. Although I will say, Jabba close up looks a little bit like who's the hut, the uh, the New Orleans sounding hut in the uh, in Clone Wars they capture. What's what's his name? Uh Zupa Zappa. Nope, that that's the name of Super Olive Garden. Um, yeah, yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, but I thought the race that they do here okay. is uh, it's really well done. Yeah. Okay, question. So, Qui-Gon's, like, just shutting Padme down right there. Is that to sell that he actually doesn't know that that's Amidala? I think so. Oh, no, he knows. So, he's basically saying, shut up, don't give away your cover? No, he's basically saying, I know who you are, and you don't have any... How do I put this? He he, he knows that that is Queen Amidala. And he's like, it's like, like you're not going to pull one on me because I, I know who you are. But so. I, I also honestly think it was a subtle warning of don't overstep your bounds. You talk like, I mean, basically she's yeah, talking like yeah. she has authority. She shouldn't be talking like that because she's supposed to be a handmaiden. I don't know. Yep, yep. You, you, you nailed it. You nailed it. All right, I here think we go. You nailed it. People love the pod racing video game. Yeah. Yeah, I, I played it, but I couldn't get past, like, the first race. Oh, Warwick Davis. Yep. Same character as in Solo. And everything. 
I'm saying that the character that we see in The Phantom Menace is the same one that we see in Solo of Star Wars. Oh, story. yeah. We see Warwick Davis as Warwick Davis, but he was Wicked the Ewok, and he's played a ton of small aliens in various Star Wars movies. Right, but I'm saying the character that he plays here is the same in Solo. Oh, you're so. saying it's the same guy? It is. No, no, no. So... In this, uh, in the Phantom Menace, he plays a character, and then this character is oh, the same is character that appeared in Solo. So, I'm having flashbacks to my car breaking down an hour or two ago right now. <laughs> so, do you think that we will see something like this again in Star Wars? I thought this was what Crate was going to be like. I, I think the Battle of Crate is a little disappointing. In terms of, it, they're just flying at the Imperials, and then they just turn around, except for Finn, and there's, like, no shots fired. This is so kinetic. So, perhaps they could not really do a race like we're seeing here, but maybe they could do a fight. like. The, oh. And then we see Ola Singh here, who gets killed by Beckett. I love that. That was great fan service. That's what I'm saying. 85% of what I loved in Solo was the fan service, and 15% was the over-the-top fan service I didn't love. And look, we're, we're already, like, what, halfway through the movie? And how many things are we bringing up that are connected to the other Star Wars films? I think I think The Phantom Menace probably collect, connects to more things than any other prequel movie. I mean, Jedi Geek Girl, stop me if I'm wrong here. But I think maybe a small part of why you're liking Rogue One more and why I think you will like Solo more over time is because it draws so much from the prequels and the Clone Wars and so forth. I actually got my own theory that I would like to dive in when we dive into it in our next episode. But yeah, that that can definitely be an aspect. Are you going to be able to handle 90 minutes to two hours of talking about Jin and Cassian? I mean... Well, I, I can handle it a lot better than I can Lando because, you know, I have my landgasms, so. Well, he's already got another lady and she's dead. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I, I will say the one thing I didn't like about the Rebel Girls uh, review of Solo was they thought it was like disempowering of L3 that she died and they forced her into the ship and, and sort of thing. I think it's beautiful that she's part of the ship. Well, I, I'm not really committed to her opinion on that, but I haven't listened to that podcast episode, but I love this little touch right here where he <laughs> pushes the thing over the edge. And see, what we are seeing in this film, especially with this race, especially like right here and stuff like that, are the cutaways, which we see in episode seven. You know, like, remember when the Millennium Falcon is flying over Jakku and they shoot down a TIE fighter? And you cut to a scavenger, go pick up all the... See, we're seeing that right here with the cutaways. Big time gangster like, looking to put a crew together. <laughs> like, we, we, we see the cutaways to, like, the person handing out the snacks. You know, we don't need to see that, but it's a George Lucas touch. So, uh, other than just a device here to tear up ships, what is the energy beam that goes between the engines? I would think that it would be kind of like a, a like a laser, like a phasma, a phasm, you know what I'm saying, a phasma layer, laser. Honestly, if I were doing, if I were redoing Solo and Corellia, as much as I loved the Worm Lady and so forth, I would have just done an entire chase scene in the beginning, straight to 
the the transition into the next part and just been on the streets i i think that that went on too long and i love the car the uh the the speeder stuff uh-oh i i think that would be a very interesting opening I, i'm expecting the jacu scavengers to come after everything here <laughs> exactly see we were seeing the cutaways you know thing about Annika's mom is her her physical movements and her facial stuff is great it's just when she talks is a little awkward so what i really like about the pod racing in episode one is that it hasn't been done too much in other places it makes episode one a lot more unique they're not going to do Having- it again ron howard's stuff that he did at the beginning of solo I, I i mean they might do it again in a future movie episode nine definitely not no, but what I'm trying to say is, is there is a lot of echoing when it comes to Star Wars for good reason. Mirroring. But pod- we call that yeah. mirroring, yeah. Yep, exactly. Uh, symmetry, you know, echoing mm-hmm. and well, mm-hmm. like rhythm, rhythm, you know, rhyming. Um, but what I really like about it is that the pod racing is so unique to episode one. And when we, when we, do, when we do see it, it is very briefly. <laughs> so... So, do you mind me spoiling something for you when it comes to the comics? No, not at all. So, in Star Wars Animal number four... Wait, as long as it's canon. It is canon. Okay. So, Luke Skywalker comes across an ancient lightsaber. And he tries to get away from chaos. And what he actually does, he tells R2-D2... That he's going to do something very stupid. And guess what he does? Destroys it? No, he gets into a pod racer and does like a half a lap. <laughs> and and get this. Darth Vader sees him racing. Interesting. Yeah, I, I highly recommend picking it up. It's Star Wars Annual number four. You know, I always loved, you know, when... um. The first time Ezra and Kanan and them go to, um, is it Dathomir? Where did they go? Um, with, uh, where they find the ancient battle between Sith and Jedi and he finds the old lightsaber. Um, um, it's not Mandalore, it's Malachi. Malachi. And Ezra picks up basically a Kylo saber and he just looks at it. He's like, okay and he just drops it <laughs> he's like i don't need this <laughs> so we saw another cut with the jawas but i want to go back a little bit and yeah. you played the star wars episode one ratio game right my cousins did i watched it i never really played it so did you always do the ramp when you were younger i don't remember because you know when i was younger you know i watched this film so i wanted to copy the movie a lot so what i did is i used the ramp like they do in a film and i tried to do the uh you know, the tilting that Anakin does. I will say, Jedi Geek Girl, we're right in the middle of the movie. This movie's two hours and 15 minutes. They could have cut some time. But I will say, if you're going to do something as epic as the pod race, I kind of respect the guts to go all out. Because if you had done this and made it like three minutes, it would have felt even more forced and weird. And the version that we are watching right now on the digital file is not the original theatrical cut. Okay. I believe the pod racing is a little shorter in the theatrical cut. 
Mm, I don't know. I've seen this a lot. I remember all this stuff. I could be wrong. Well, well, I know that they did add it. Like, I they added something to like the VHS, and I think they added something to the DVD outside of Yoda. Okay. So you might want to look into it. I think it's a couple scenes. I don't think it's a lot. Okay, but people watching at home probably have this or a similar edition, which is the oh, important yeah. part. Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to see a shorter version of the Phantom Menace and what thing because you know they didn't release the actual actual theatrical cut. See, I used to do that in the video game. But don't you agree? Like when Obi Wan says, "Oh, when I met your father, he was already a great pilot." Like this would have been enough, or we wait till Anakin gets older and then see him as a great pilot. I think. I think that was ultimately what people took uh, what took people out of this movie in terms of Jake Lloyd was a nine-year-old super amazing starfighter pilot I think was a big mistake but we'll get there yeah I have my own thing to address that but but just like I was saying like Han Solo started by doing this he wasn't an actual flyer up oh. woo Look, look, look how beautiful it's gorgeous. the pod racing scenes are. They, they blend so <laughs> seamlessly. I'm still waiting for the Jakku scavengers. <laughs> Pudu. You know, Jedi Geek Girl, the original Bizzlecast was called Pudu Cast. I think I remember hearing that. But. Because I was talking a bunch of bullshit <laughs> about Star Wars. <laughs> so. I actually like naked C-3PO because when I was little, I didn't have many toys. But one of the toys that I had was like a little thing that you would put a, you would put a chip on and it would do a voice of one of the characters. And one of the chips that I had was to C-3PO. And one of the things he said is, was, my parts are showing, oh my goodness, or something like that. So, Okay. If I was writing that scene, I would not have Qui-Gon run in and put him on his shoulders. I would have Qui-Gon wisely and sort of mischievously standing back and kind of smiling and observing it. I thought that was excessive. I really like how Obi-Wan Kenobi, and you said this earlier, how he's more in the background. He isn't the central focus. It could have been so easy to make him the focus and try to make him more of a fan service. Yeah. Where we get that towards the end of the film, but... You know, this is this is all Qui Gon. I'm just I, I'm just a huge well, Qui Gon film, no. and I hope we get a film. Well, know. and just to continue that thought, it's important because up until Qui Gon dies, Obi Wan is very skeptical about training this kid, and Obi Wan mm-hmm. only gets behind it when Qui Gon dies because it's the last wish of his master um, against Yoda's wishes, which is very subtle and interesting. I think the relationship between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan is probably one of the best we have seen between Master and Padawan. Would you agree with that? You want to quickly rank Master-Padawan relationships? Uh, I There's so many that, that I think right. I'd be lost out of words. But. I, have, I have Ezra and Kanan as one. I uh, have yeah. uh, An- Obi-Wan slash Anakin and Ahsoka as two. Just because we have so much time to spend with those characters. And I probably have this one as three. I think I would put Anakin, um, Ahsoka, number two. I, that's what I had. I had them number two. Oh, well, you also had them tied with um, Obi-Wan and Anakin. No, no, no. Oh, the three-way. Okay. 
Yeah, I'm saying uh, Ahsoka was Anakin's, but uh, Obi-Wan was overseeing it, you know? Yeah, it's okay. That's what you meant. I so got here we you. go. Obi-Wan's, uh, I'm sorry, Qui-Gon's manipulated this whole thing, freed the boy, he's completely tricked Wado, he can actually use Jedi tricks on him, and now he's going to let his mom go at, be a slave, and there's no way that Qui-Gon with his powers doesn't sense that something terrible might happen to the mom, which leads older Anakin to slaughter a bunch of Tusken Raiders and go evil for good. Well, I think... You know, as Yoda says, the force is always, the future is always in movement. And we are at a period in time when the dark side is clouding the Jedi's vision of the future. So Qui-Gon Jinn might be able to look into the future, but he's not sure if that's the future that's going to happen or one that he will try to, that he will try to avoid, but will end up causing like Anakin Skywalker. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, go ahead. Other than facing Darth Maul, which obviously is a big deal, and they know he's a Sith of some sort. Does Qui-Gon ever comment or talk about like a rising in the dark force where like we need this kid because it seems so irrational that he it would be of critical importance to take this kid away from his mom who's going to remain a slave and train him against Yoda's wishes. It doesn't it never really added up. Now uh, Liam Neeson's amazing acting sells it to me from a logistical standpoint. It never quite added up, especially with the implied relationship that's going on between Qui-Gon and Shmi Skywalker here. One of the things that doesn't really sit with me correctly is, and I know you don't really care for it, but I want to dive into it a little bit. It's the prophecy of the chosen one. If the children with the prophecy of the chosen one is to being balanced to the force, why is that a prophecy when right now there's nothing wrong with the force? You know what I'm saying? There's no Sith, there's no dark side. So what is that prophecy oh, fulfilling? You know what I'm saying? I have no problem with the prophecy of the chosen one because I think it's complicated and there's multiple chosen ones. There's no chosen ones. It's all a matter of perspective as the Jedi talk about. My problem is her thinking she's not been impregnated and, and the force birthed him. I, I just, it doesn't... George Lucas is such a progressive guy. He's so into Eastern philosophy. The idea of holy births is so against everything he's ever talked about. It just never made sense to me, and I've never researched it enough to know why he thought that was a cool idea. Well, what I'm saying is what I don't really get is there's the prophecy of the chosen one, which is supposed to bring, yep, which is supposed to bring balance to the force, but right now there's nothing wrong, so Mm -hmm. why is there a prophecy? And if there is a prophecy then we know that something bad's coming, but the Jedi get, you know, mm-hmm. taken by surprise. The, the, like, pr- the problem is, Jedi Geek Girl, f- to fully understand it, you need to read the Dune book series, which George Lucas drew heavy from, because the same thing happens where they think they've discovered the Messiah, and he's a hesitant Messiah on a desert planet, and he leads against the evil people, but he becomes corrupt with power and it becomes a jihad across the galaxy, which causes more problems and ends up being his son, actually, who ends up being the true Messiah and setting things straight, just like Luke and, and Anakin. So I, I actually love that dynamic personally, but I, it, I know it comes from Dune and so I love it more. And we're talking over a very, what I would call powerful scene, but I do want to touch upon that in a little bit. I believe that Yoda was correct when he says that the prophecy was misread. I believe the prophecy of the yes, chosen one was. wasn't supposed to bring balance to the light side, which, you know, what ended up happening. Well, that's for a different episode because we could go down the rabbit hole there, but 
Yeah, I, I think there's more to the prophecy of the chosen one, quote unquote, in Star Wars than meets the eye. And I do agree with you that it is supposed to be a prophecy that carries down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. Can I bring in a totally random property in relation to his mom that you might not care about at all, but I got to try? Um, sure. But I do want to say yeah. one more thing about Go. the scene is Go. I when I watched this film last year, this moment is it really stuck with me. It was really powerful. It, I cried because it's powerful. He knows. Qui-Gon doesn't know about the killing of the Tusken Raiders 10 years from now, but he knows he has to separate him from his mom to have a chance. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. But anyways, you were saying while we're talking over this B.A. Doc Mall moment. So I, I am not a guy who's into musicals, but I love Les Miserables, Les Mis. I don't know if you're into Les Mis. Haven't seen it. Okay. And we're going it's, to- it's the notion that poor women who get impregnated almost by accident and no, don't know who the father is come up with justifications in their poor lives about where the babies came from and so forth. You know, the way that the Christian texts that have been discovered in the last couple hundred years have shown that Jesus definitely had a dad that was just part of the Christian mythology. Sorry, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, um, uh, offend anybody, but we know Jesus had a dad. Um, and you know, I, I think that's what Lucas is tapping into. Look at this. Sorry. Yeah, we're, we're talking over a beautiful fight. I love how they're kicking up stand and stuff, sand and stuff like that. But yeah, way, the way to get real world religious. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Well, just in, in Eastern philosophy, it doesn't matter where you come from, who you're born from, what state or position you are. It's all about uh, attaining wisdom and knowledge and, and skills and so forth. It's a very Western thing. Again, this is also the you're either born with Jedi powers or not. It's a very Germanic, European, genetic thing that makes me really uncomfortable, to be honest with you. And it doesn't really jive with my love of, of the Force. And I think they're trying to correct that a bit in the new Star Wars trilogy and why it was important, as I know you agree that Rey is not a Skywalker. Well, I don't think you... Uh, how do I put this? I don't think that be- being a Jedi is as limited as what it's perceived to be, because shit is not a Jedi, but he can he's in touch with the Force. It just takes a lot of effort mm-hmm. for him to do so. And that'll be a big question we talk about next week about Chirrut Imwe. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's going to be a detailed conversation, but... For that, you must pay. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's great. Oh my god, mm-hmm. look at her! Sorry so, guys, I know she's 17, but I was 17 at the time, and she was born the same year as me. I'm not ashamed, she's gorgeous. So, the government of <laughs> Naboo... Is governed by a queen or a king who's elected, who is who is elected, who is young, with a governing council mm-hmm. that are older people. Yep. So that way, the government is always progressing with advice by the older people instead of the older people being the one in charge. Because mm-hmm. as you get older, spoiler alert, you end up getting more rigid. So I've described Padme slash Amidala as a reflection of the two sides of Princess Leia. Um, and I think that creates some really cool juxtapositions. 
But I also think when she gives up being Amidala for good, she does lose something because I, I think she has some power over Anakin if she remains the queen, where when she's just Senator Padme, the power dynamic shifts in a way that I'm not totally on board with, I guess. Yeah, I can I can definitely see where you're coming from. Although it's good she gave it up because she would have gotten blown up in the terrorist attack at the beginning of Attack of the Clones. So what I really like here is, is Anakin gives her a necklace, which we see in episode three in a scene of Padme's funeral. Look, I'll say it again. Anakin here and Padme here have better chemistry than Anakin and Padme in the other movies. I'm sorry. Look how beautiful Coruscant looks on the outside. And yet it works. It looks worse in Attack of the Clones, and then it looks great again in Sith. Here we go. It might have been such a thing that George Lucas spent so much money experimenting on his CGI that he didn't have much left over. Can I give you my quick theory? Yeah, go for it. I think Phantom Menace went way over budget. And then he knew that the movie everyone was waiting for was episode three, the, the Rise of Vader, and he wanted to save a ton for that. And so he was forced to make compromises in episode two. That's my theory. It, it, it's definitely valid, that's for sure. Okay, so I, the, w- this is beginning the part where I don't know where Kira Knightley is. I believe that's Kira Knightley on the left and Natalie Portman on the right. I was going to mention earlier about how you can watch this film and be like, okay, who's who? The fact that they look so similar and Daisy Ridley also looks similar to them, not a coincidence. So that's that's Natalie's voice, but I still think it's, I think it's Kira. uh, I think at this point in time, she's switched into the queen role. Because there's no need to protect herself here. Oh no, that's clearly Padme. Yeah, whenever they have Padme and Amidala kind of side by side and you can tell it's not a blue screen, it's Kira and Amidala's uh, makeup, especially when it's thick makeup. Jar Jar looks really smooth close up. It's only when he's doing his weird like dance walk that it looks weird. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's just like the imagery, you know. And this is part of why I I can't stand the new ending to Return of the Jedi, because not only was it unnecessary, but Coruscant doesn't even look like Coruscant at the end of that movie. It's also been an environment that has been oppressed for 20 years. That's true. But yeah, I I know what you mean. I I completely know what you mean. Speaking of the lore cast, oh wait, hold on, let's focus in here. Yep, here it is. He's, okay, the great tragedy of the prequels is he convinces Padme and Jar Jar to actively and voluntarily put him in permanent power. That's how sad this is. What I like is he is such a master manipulist that he doesn't need to tap into the force. He, nope. he, he screams charisma. He screams authority. He screams love me like you like i'm watching it and i, I want to be friends with him you know he's the bad guy but he, he's such you know and that's what makes him tempting tempting ezra so 
realistic and I, I'm just a huge fan of Palpatine. Yeah, I think he's my favorite Star Wars villain. Oh my god, look at this shot. Beautiful. Our people are dying, Senator. Look, I'm sorry, people. You can hate on Nellie Portman in the prequels. Any problems with her in the prequels is writing and directing. She is acting her fucking ass off. Mm-hmm. And like I said, this is her film. And I want to say it quickly, but I really hope that they do a film in the prequel trilogy. Yeah, because I would love to see Coruscant again like this. Okay. All right. Here it is. Lore cast. Here we go. I'm going to turn the volume up. Sith has been extinct for a millennium. We know that that's not true, obviously. There's Nick Fury. I mean, uh, Mace Window. I thought he was Shaft. Shaft! <laughs> okay. Jedi Geek Girl. Something me and you know that most people don't know is Coruscant is actually built on a giant Sith virgins. Yep. Sith Temple, yes. So they are being manipulated by forces they're not even aware of. Oh, here it is. Mm. Yep. Mm-hmm. I personally buy into the theory that they built their temple on a strong dark side version out of arrogance to try to suppress it, which obviously didn't work. Yeah, I think it's basically Malachor resettled, and they don't realize what's going on. Oh, I think they, I think they know. Not, I don't know about this generation, but I'm sure that Jedi who mm. settled on it knew. The fact that Yoda doesn't know until the end of Episode Three what's going on tells me his mind is being clouded by other forces. I think. Oh no, his 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 it says here. Yes, his his mind is being clouded right here. Um, but did you know that in a un in a um unfinished episode of the Clone Wars. Ahsoka was actually going to discover the Sith Temple underneath the Jedi Temple. And she was going to come sort of face-to-face, not really face-to-face, but she was going to have an encounter with Sidious. Okay. Here we go. Look at that costume. See, I personally believe that this is Padme. You know, you know, pretending that, you know, she doesn't know him to keep her cover. Yeah, and also that's Natalie Portman. We get the close-up. Yeah. I think for the speech, you know, she had to be there. And, you know, she is such a good politician. You know, she's confident. She's strong. She's, you know... I, I love the politics side of Padme just as much as I love the aggressive negotiation side of her, too. I know. I just think it's a shame that we had to wait for the Clone Wars to get the full and Force of Destiny to get the full thing, but whatever. Oh, no, I totally agree This with is you. so cinematic. I used to hate this design of the Senate, but when you think about this leading directly into the Empire, it makes total sense. Yeah, there's another quote that was in my toy. Yeah, I mean, this is all manipulation. He's manipulating Dooku, who's manipulating the Trade Federation. It's actually brilliant, but at the time, it just made no sense. But in retrospect, you get it all. 
It sounds like a certain other current event thing that is happening right now. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, you know, people tend to forget, you know, pieces get dropped one at a time. You know, I said it before, but, you know, I really hope that they explore this air more in films. I mean, The the Last Jedi did, and that's why it got so bashed by the idiots. Well, I'm talking about the uh, the time period, you know? Yep, he's speaking poison into her ear. And I I think something that's lost on people is one of the only reasons she trusts him is because he's from Naboo. Mm hmm. You know, he, he, that imagery right there is like the serpent, you know, in his in her ear. Like, literally. 17-year-old Natalie Portman delivering these lines is just amazing. I mean, Jay Girl, I'm not going to lie. We are an hour and a half into a two-hour, 15-minute movie. It is flying by, and we still haven't get to see Natalie Portman kick ass, which is coming up. Oh, yeah. You know, it's the look thing how about sad. The- I'm sorry. Look how sad she looks. Uh huh. But this this specifically represents our political situation, which is the liberal progressive Democrats can't stand together. We fight against each other, and so the right wing is able to mobilize and scare everyone into putting themselves in power. That's exactly what's going on. And sorry, people, if you haven't read George Lucas's political views and watched these movies closely, you don't know what's going on. Either you love the either you love the politics of the prequels or you can't stand them. I really like it because George Lucas has always been I would say I don't want to say ahead of his time when it comes to politics in his film, but on a nail, you know? I mean the evil empire and the originals that look like okay, hold on, here we go. Mm-hmm. So Luke is too young and but this guy's too young too. Luke is too old, yeah. Yeah. And he's too old here, too. How feel you? By the way, this is a direct mirror of when Yoda's testing Ezra. Mm, Yeah, yeah. Which I want to bring up, but I don't want to interrupt this. Yep. So you know when Yoda's testing Ezra... And, yeah. he, and he says, and Ezra's saying, I feel, and Yoda says, yes, feel, what do you feel when he's talking about his friend's sacrifice? And Ezra just says, I feel alive. And that makes me cry every time. He feels alive helping his friends doing the right thing. And that's what Yoda ultimately rewards Ezra. I like the growth that we see of Yoda from the prequel trilogy to the sequel trilogy, especially what happened to him during the Clone Wars, because right now he's very much a part of the system. Look at this costuming. It is absurd, but it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Gungans get pasted, too. I love that line. Yep. Here's you know, the thing. Jar Jar's being wise here, and she's listening to him. You know... I, you know, I really do enjoy the Gungans. I mean, the Gungans are the only one outside of Obi-Wan Kenobi that took down General Grievous. You know? 
I think people forget that these are a capable race, you know, or species. A surprise, to be sure, but a welcome one. I love it. Right, right. the the right the 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 right wing uh, is always talk about putting an end to corruption by having a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's not wrong. I love how she takes control of the situation. By the way, how practical these sets are compared to episode two. Mm-hmm. Episode two has its own charms, but, you know, it doesn't have the same feel as this one. Did you notice that little look about how happy he he's acting like she should stay, but he's happy she's going back to Naboo to be killed, hopefully, or just get out of his way? Well, see, the thing about it is it no matter what happens, his plan is going to happen. You know? He, he's going to get his power. It doesn't matter what happens next. If she dies, she he just uses her Dugana's sympathy. You know? How old do you think Sidious slash Palpatine is? Uh, here, I think he's uh forty-five. I don't know. I don't know. I I didn't really think about it, and I don't know. Yeah, I think I, he's I, like two or three hundred years. But it's okay. Let's no. fo- let's focus here. Let's focus here. He's too old. Yeah, why would you say this in front of the kid? Uh, Qui-Gon's an idiot. I love Qui-Gon Jinn. He treats... He, uh, look, all the Jedi are acting irrational here because of the virgins, because of the disturbance in the Force. But to talk about him being the chosen one in front of them and him getting angry, they're all handling this extremely poorly. Yeah, I don't think it is a good idea to talk about him being mm-hmm. the chosen one because automatically he gains a sense of grandness. Oh, I'm important now. I mean, imagine if you, just on a smaller level, imagine if you started high school and you were called in by all the principals and the guidance counselors and everyone said, this this student is going to be the best student the next four years at this school, right? You'd be like, uh... Not not even the best student, but hey, this is going to be the student that takes us to nationals, whatever, academic, you know? Going to win all the athletics, win all the awards, the whole thing. Yep. Automatically, so in that retrospect, automatically it puts so much pressure on Anakin. It's no wonder why he lashes out. Mm-hmm. Contrasting to Ahsoka, who, as Simi pointed out, is the valedictorian, the head of the class, the head of the soccer team, the head of the cheerleading team, the head of the debate team, and yet they drive her out. The most rational and talented of all the Jedi, they drive Ahsoka out. She's the most rational. Like- and not only that, and I'm sorry, but I want to say that one of the she's so humble about it. She doesn't have an ego about it. With Anakin, he has an ego about it because he knows he is the chosen one, quote unquote. I forgot know? how much in the background Obi Wan is in this movie. It's it's stunning. Not only Obi Wan, but there's a lot going around in the background in this film. That I, I don't know if episode. I don't know if the secret. I don't know if the sequel trilogy has this. A lot of the stuff going around um, in the background. So, you know, the main criticism of Qui-Gon by people who don't like the the movie or movies is he's kind of flat 
and one or two dimensional. I don't think so at all. I think he's super three dimensional. My, my criticism is he clearly has more sway than he should. He's being totally swayed by his feelings. And, you know, it, this is a completely an irrational attempt to build up this kid. When it comes to the prequel trilogy version of the Jedi, I think when it comes to the idea of what a Jedi should be, I think Qui-Gon is the closest to it. Uh, one of the three that are closest to it. You know what I'm saying? Of what a Jedi is actually supposed to be. So I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of people who don't like The Last Jedi don't like the prequels because Luke's attitude towards the corruption uh, and destruction of the Jedi in uh, in The Last Jedi is very reminiscent of the corruption of the Jedi and the Jedi council in the prequels. And so if you've always thought from the original trilogy that the Jedis are, you know, holy angels of God bringing down righteousness to people all the time, then sure you won't like the Luke Skywalker portrayal, but Luke is actually, he even talks about the rise of Darth Sidious and, you know, and, and, and everything in the last Jedi, like he's totally tapping into it. And that's why he thinks the Jedi need to die at least for, a while what i really like about that is it makes the jedi a bit more real when you see that they are flawed and that the jedi idea is something to aspire to it's not something that you get that makes you automatically a hero it is something that you work towards kind of like how a real life religious figure will work towards you know what i'm saying you don't become a a priest to use that term for lack of better words to and automatically become holy you have to work towards that you have to practice it you know what i'm saying or even a doctor or something like that you know i am not the last jedi oh it gives me chills every time you know and that's probably why i love the last jedi so much is because i do enjoy the prequels so we'll save this for rogue one in future conversations but i think there's a direct line between uh, rogue one the last jedi and empire in terms of how dark and artistic those movies are and I would even add Revenge of the Sith. And Revenge of the Sith. Yep. Yep. Which and surprise, surprise, those movies are like four of my top six or seven. So. Ah, <laughs> uh, surprise, surprise, those are my top four Star Wars films. But we'll say it's that for next episode. I also like that. Ewan's not even trying to put on the full Alec Guinness yet. No, he doesn't really start capturing that until episode two. A little bit. But it wasn't until episode three where he really nails it. Intentionally. Here we go. Here we go. Here's Natalie being awesome. And one of my biggest disappointments of the next two movies is... She is a little awesome in episode two. She becomes damsel in distress and it's really hard to watch. Yeah, and you know, that's something that... When it comes to the Lucas trilogy that the female leads... like. Princess Leia is so awesome in episode four, and then she declined a little bit. What? Same thing happened to... Did you see the end of Empire Strikes Back? She I, she I'm takes talk- on the entire army. No, 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 no. Oh, you're talking about Return of the Jedi. No, even the Empire Strikes Back. She doesn't trust Lando from the beginning. She's suspicious no, of the whole thing. Let me rephrase that, Okay. You take the performance of these female leads in the first two films of their respective trilogies, and in the last one, they are not at the same level. She kills Jabba the Hutt 
She allows herself to be exploited so she can kill the worst gangster in the galaxy and save the man she loves. Sorry, that's not being disempowered in my book. No, I'm. that's not what I meant, but... No, yeah. I know what you meant. I just, I don't buy into the Princess Leia being, you know, like... Uh, being a damsel in distress. I, I never see that with her character. Whereas episode three, Padme, I, it's hard to see it any other way. Oh, here we go. I, okay. That, that, that is Keir Knightley right there. Clearly. Yeah, clearly. Cause Padme is in the scene. This is so. beautiful. This reminds me of, you know, the tree from last Jedi. I love this fantasy stuff. I know you you are right about Leia and Return of the Jedi. I guess, you know, it is sad that, you know, Panama herself decreases in her trilogy. But yeah. yeah, you're right. Especially with Leia being the hot slayer and her relationship with Ricket and stuff like that. So yeah, you're right. So Here we go. Here we go. This is why I fell in love with Natalie Portman right here. Yeah. And if you look, you know, everybody's surprised except Qui Gon Jinn. See, he looks at Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan knows, I and, think, yeah. And a little smile. You know, Qui-Gon gives, you know, a little smile. You can't be a Jedi Master or a high apprentice of a Jedi Master without being able to read people's minds a little bit, I think. I think he could definitely sense it in the fourth this is round. A- okay. This is what's this, missing from the new movies is humans humbling themselves before aliens for help. I love this. Yeah, I love the scene right here. The hum you know. She she doesn't even there's no threat. There's no she's just begging. It just adds a lot of depth to her character. You know, she's strong, she's powerful, but she is perfectly okay with humbling herself. So I'm sure you know this, uh, or maybe you know this, but like in the last 10 or 15 years in Hollywood, looking like Natalie Portman or like having a Natalie Portman vibe is like something that casters look for in young actresses. I don't Mm -hmm. know what it is. Uh, you know about her being so appealing looking and sounding but she's like the prototype so um after this film came out were you still dressing for halloween or not i don't think we were really doing halloween at this point but we definitely dressed up for our first two or three viewings well i was wondering if you did because you know everybody it seemed like was dressing as mall or jedi I mean, we we were straight edge kids who didn't drink or smoke weed, so we would just run around playing with lightsabers and shit. Yeah, you still doing grand? Yeah. <laughs> Poor Jar Jar at the end of his life. Look it up, people. It's a sad end. Yeah, you know, you know, we said it before, and I'm gonna say it again. You know, I, I don't Jar Jar does not bug me. Not at all. I'm trying to be like, and I hate this. And I'm like, no, you know, some of the humor doesn't connect with me, but yeah. he doesn't annoy me. I mean, can be perfectly honest, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which is basically perfect, and the Matrix trilogy, which starts out great and then gets good and then gets bad. 
other than that, there's not a lot of great Hollywood trilogies or series since this until now. And so this keeps looking better and better to me when I see Transformers and Pirates of the Caribbean and all this other stuff. This is so much deeper, so much more interesting, amazing actors. It just gets better over time. You know, and people talk about about how different this film is compared to the original trilogy, and I actually like that. I like how this is clearly Star Wars, but it's not quote-unquote Star Wars because it's not the same Star Wars, which is nice because, you know, you need to expand. You need to have different approaches, and this set up the groundwork of not only the prequels trilogy, but other things that have expanded upon it, especially in Legends and Canon. So, look, you know, sometimes you need those things. Here's the bottom line, Jagged Girl. While this didn't get reviewed great by the press, it got really well reviewed by fans at the time, and it made a billion dollars, and then it dropped hundreds of millions to Attack of the Clones for two reasons crappy special effects and weird pacing and the weird chemistry between Natalie Portman and Hayden Christensen. Now they fixed a lot of that in revenge of the Sith and the money went up and the reviews went way up. The revenge of the Sith reviews critics and people is quite high, but they definitely lost steam in the second movie. And it would be an interesting sort of historical film study to figure out why that happened. So, number one, you know, obviously I was so young, so I didn't pay attention. But from what my understanding, and right here is when the movie shifts into another gear. This is the beginning of quote-unquote Star Wars. In Star Wars, especially in its climaxes, you have three different settings going on. And I'm sorry, but right here is when the movie shifts into another gear. But anyways, going back to what I originally was saying is... It was my understanding that the first month or two of The Phantom Menace, there was no backlash. It wasn't until later when the backlash really started. Now, obviously, I, I, I wasn't paying attention, so I don't know if that is true or not. So, they showed a little bit, a, a good deal of this in the original trailer. By the way, uh, the Phantom Menace trailer was the first major Hollywood trailer that they released in... What was then considered HD, it wouldn't be HD now, but you could download as a semi-HD file back in like 1999, and they showed this part right here. And I remember thinking it looks really cool and colorful, but it also looked a little flat and shiny. And once once these forces engage with each other, and this looks great, I, I really like it, but there is something a little shiny, and I think the urban warfare for sure is way more interesting here. It's definitely something that we really haven't seen before at that point in time. You know, and this just captured, you know, your imagination at that point in time. I wonder if they would go this direction and explore this type of war film, warfare in Star Wars. Because, you know, it, it adds a different layer of conflict instead of fighting in an open field type thing, so... Well, I guess, okay, so with the Gungans coming out of the fog, that is the movie shifting gears, but it shifts another gear coming up here, and you know exactly what I'm talking yep. about. Do you think that Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon don't put up a fight about Padme fighting because they know that her people need her on the front lines? 
It's like yeah. it's like okay. Princess Leia. Princess Leia could have been a great leader from behind the lines the whole time, but she always wants to be on the front lines fighting, right? Right, exactly. And you gotta remember in this galaxy, you know, it doesn't matter that, you know, she's fighting it, you know, it's just the strength of her character that matters and they know that she can take care of herself. I just, I think one of the things Disney learned is, and you know Disney loves their princesses, and thank God for Princess Leia in Episode 7 and 8, and, and Amidala here, and Princess Leia in the original trilogy, but I think they did Rey and Jin a huge favor by not burdening them with being royalty. Um, oh, I agree 100%. Yeah. Woo! Look how beautiful that crash was. I actually like the canary ships. I didn't like them at the time. I like them much better now. What I really like is I like the Naboo blaster sounds. I think they are very iconic. Oh, then you know, you know what that scene reminded me of the droid fighters coming up from the Trade Federation ship. You know what that reminded me of? Mm. You know exactly what that reminded me of. Sorry, I'm just. Oh, will you say it again? I'm just watching this greatness. So the scene with the droid fighters coming out of the Trade Federation ship reminded me of uh-huh. Rogue One. Uh-huh. Oh, God. Did Here you, we go. Did you ever listen to my, uh, my uh, Sith uh, commentary? No, not yet. It's really funny because the first 10 minutes I'm trying to be all snarky and sarcastic. And like 11 minutes in, I'm like, okay, guys, I really like this movie. <laughs> I like the droids, how they're deploying. Like, oh, I love the shields. Yes. Yeah, and you see the battle shifting up gears and stuff like that. You see the tension. and It's just, with all the colorless, boring Hollywood movies, this is so colorful and fun. Mm-hmm. Oh. Look at that. You know, and at the time, you got to remember that we never saw a battle on this scale when this came out. Well, Braveheart. No, I, I'm, I'm talking in Star Wars. You know, because you obviously yeah. have the original trilogy. So. Oh, yeah. People love the Hoth battle. I actually think the Hoth battle is the least interesting part of Empire. Yeah, I can agree with that to a degree. But, I mean... Right, but we didn't see a battle like this in Star Wars at the point in that point in time. I mean, Rogue One and, has the best ground battles still ever. Hmm. Woo! Yeah. Look, they're going right at them because they don't care. They're fucking droids. Exactly. God, her skinny blaster is so cool. I wonder if they were channeling that with Jin's blaster. It looks—it's not quite as skinny, but it looks similar. They in the cockpit. Here we go. Uh, Best entrance ever. Sorry, I can't help myself. No, 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 no. Best entrance ever. Yes or no? Well, I think Vader and Rogue One, but this is up there. I love how, you know, they're they're so civilized, like, you know, like knights, you know what I'm saying? And by the way, I'm sure you noticed this, when Vader appears in Rogue One, the music is very Duel of the Fates. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Oh, man. Oh, we we tried to recreate this battle so many times, me and my friends. I mean, who didn't, you know? 
Sorry, guys. My sound's going to bleed through in the final mix. You're going to have to deal with it. I'm listening to this loud as shit. Oh, God. Okay, so people don't know this, but in aircraft, you have pedals as well as what you're steering with your hands. He can't even reach the floor. This makes no sense. That's true, but this is also a fictional ship. You know, who's to say that they have pedals? Right, which is why I think there should have been a time jump in this to slightly older Anakin doing this stuff, but whatever. And and even if there are foot pedals, there's a astromech droid who also controls the ship. ship. Do you think there is any weirdness in the fact that you have a... Well, you say Padme is supposed to be 14, so let's say somewhere between 14 and 17, and a nine-year-old boy, and they fall in love later. Do you think that's weird at all? I do think it is a little weird, and it is canon that she is 14. That is immaterial. So, beautiful fight right here. Like, we literally should not even be talking over this. The music. By the way, people. Right here, right here, right here. Uh, Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan. Oh. Qui-Gon in the Obi-Wan stance, the older Obi-Wan stance. Yeah. By the way, the amount of flippiness in this whole thing is way overstated. It's it's very finesse. Well, it's like a fine ballet. You know, these are warriors in tune so well with the Force that it is like, you know, they're choreographed. You know, they're supposed to be that way. And it's not just that he's flying it, but the accidental high. I'm fine with the accidental hijinks with Jar Jar because it fits with his character. But the accidental hijinks of Anakin destroying the thing, it's, I mean, it's my least favorite part of the movie and I can't explain it. So right now it is on autopilot, you know, it isn't until uh, R2-T2 takes it off. I think they should have just let R2 do the whole thing and make it think, Anakin think it's him. (laughs) Well, you can make it your head cannon. I love this little touch right here. You know. I mean, if yep. Jar Jar is an agent of the Force, then what's happening to him makes sense. Mm. But yeah, he, this is on autopilot. Oh, right here. look at this! We, we don't see this again till beginning of Revenge of the Sith, which I might have to watch after this movie. Yeah, I don't blame you. See, it's on autopilot. I I don't believe the ships in Star Wars has pedals. I don't think that's the case. Need to get a fictional dictionary. That's what we need to do. By the way, for some reason, the anthology visual dictionaries are bigger and more involved than these the uh, saga ones. Well, that's because you know the saga is continuously going, and they can't they won't want to give away everything with a anthology films it doesn't really matter well to be fair the saga ones they call visual dictionaries and they're kind of thin the rogue one they call the ultimate visual guide so it's a combination of the visual dictionary and like behind the scenes and artwork and stuff that's true look at look at the background with the naboo and stuff like that my dad got me a year or two ago the complete star wars encyclopedia so it, it ends in like 2012 or 2013 but it's glorious look at this boom mm-hmm. 
Even people who hate the prequels know this music. Oh, yeah, it's, it's even in solo a little bit. I'm, I'm, look, Here we I, go. Back to the lightsaber fight. Look, guys, I see I can't watch Attack of the Clones, but if you truly hate the prequels, I just feel sorry for you. This is glorious. Look at this. Oh, Like, I don't know how you put this film below Attack of the Clones. I, 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 in my opinion, this one goes above Attack of the Clones. Oh, yeah. I think the gap between Revenge of the Sith and this is smaller than the gap between this and Attack of the Clones. I can agree with that. I can agree with that. Not that there isn't things I like about Attack of the Clones, yeah, but yeah, did I don't know why I don't know how people put this below Attack what? of the Clones. I I just don't get it. Okay, here we go. Music. And by the way, if we don't get this flippy jumpy stuff, we don't get the Clone Wars with the Jedi. Exactly. Look at this. You know, Qui Gon is so calm and in tune with the Force. So here's the question. Here's the question. Is his, what happens here, is this a variation of Obi-Wan give, uh, voluntarily giving in to Vader in uh, episode four? Uh, no, I, I think Qui-Gon Jinn was truly taken by surprise. He does look like it, but it does empower Obi-Wan. So right here, he is so in tune with the Force that he doesn't have to watch. By the way... Qui-Gon loses to Maul because he doesn't fight with emotion. Guess what makes Obi-Wan beat Maul? Emotion, anger, passion. The same thing Rey does. Yep. But Rey, like Obi-Wan, can come back to themselves afterwards. The same thing Luke did. Yep. I'm catching something here. It's almost like, you know, these films take place in the same universe with, I don't know, some type of rhythm, you know? Come on, people. You know, it rhymes. I just think all of the world building and the colorfulness, it just becomes more appealing and more fun over time. And if you can't appreciate at least that, I just feel bad for you. I like how this podcast is basically like, hey, you know, if you don't like this, you know, but it, it just, it just, it draws you in again. It's not a matter of liking. It's just a matter of being able to enjoy certain things. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I always yeah, love the know. orbs, by the way. The big and the small yeah. ones. Uh, big fan. The, the Boombas. Which is the card in Star Wars Destiny. I mean, I, look, this is an exact mirror of the Ewoks. And there's yes. parts where it seems like the Ewoks are beating the Empire by accident. But if you watch most of the battle, they plan it really well. So we're seeing... I think the biggest problem here is we should see the Gungans, who are actually competent, beating them with a little Jar Jar. But it seems like Jar Jar is winning the whole battle. I think, you know, people are like, hey, we don't like Gungans. But I think the Gungans, to a degree, are more capable Woo! than the Ewoks. I think the Ewoks are a lot more creative than the Gungans, but I think that the Gungans are better, you know, oh, yeah. if that makes any yes. sense. But the Ewoks have one thing, which is they're in their natural terrain and have all sorts of traps set up for just exactly. such occasion. Yep. Exactly. The Gungans are fighting out of water, which is so brave. Yes. This looks And then great. we see them fight in the Clone Wars. This looks yeah. great. This all looks great. <laughs> I love the, the yeah. Soldiers. Join the club, buddy. My whole car's overheated. <laughs> <laughs> I I love the ship. Ship the ship mm. is an N one starfire. 
Woo! Here we go. Yeah. All right, guys. This is definitely coming up in two weeks from now when we talk Ahsoka Mall. Here we go. So we're going to see a move that Qui-Gon does, and I'm sorry, that Maul does on Qui-Gon that Obi-Wan knows Maul is going to do and counteract it in Rebels. Here we go. Here. In Twin Suns. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Right here. Yeah. Nope, right. Here it comes. Yep. And. Yep. Here you go. Same move. Yep. Yep, he tries to do that thing where he hits him in the face and slices him, and Obi-Wan and Twin Sons just duck slightly out of the way and just slices him. What I like about this fight is so many things are drawn from it, especially with what we just see. You know, Obi-Wan lands, and when Obi-Wan does the flip over Maul, you know, Maul has the high ground, but he was taken by surprise. So in episode three, when Anakin tries it on Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan has already been there. He knows. Mm-hmm. So, you know? can, I, can I just say one thing about George Lucas really quick? Yeah, go for it. I don't want George Lucas to apologize or make explanations for things that he did or didn't do in the prequels. What I would like him to talk about in retrospect is that he was trying out a lot of things, and, and it wasn't until he did some trial and error that he landed upon things like Ahsoka, like keeping Maul in the picture, and so forth. Because that's how art works, you know? It's, it's never a static thing. I agree. I agree 100%. And I love how oh, New yeah, Found Ways falls. Woo! Yep. So, that you, do you know that there is a rumored Panama book coming? It's a rumor, but... I think Kat Tabor, who voices uh, Padme, is one of the luckiest voice actors on the planet. Yeah, here we go. Oh yeah! This this part right here is uh, so beautiful. Look how quick they move! Boom, 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 boom! Yeah. Oh, so people beautiful. think the Obi Wan movie is gonna be too much fan service, like Solo. People are gonna eat this shit up, man. Look, uh, he just—he's like twenty three or twenty four here, by the way. Yeah, Woo! and they—they they are doing this all in pretty much real time here. Oh yeah, it's just so beautiful. Well, no, they do the Matrix thing. They speed it up by about 10%. You can barely tell. Okay, but they're still doing it. Yeah. So. They're doing it in Jedi real time. Exactly. Oh. <clears throat> oh, there happens to be something to hold on to. <laughs> if, there's anything, if there's anything that I wish about this fight is that if, if, it could, could, if it could go on just a little bit longer, because it's like a visual orgasm with the lightsaber fighting. At least for me, it was. But for the people who really honed in on this thing as the thing they like the best, it makes you come back over and over again as it did us to see that fight. Exactly. You know, the, the fight itself is worth watching this movie. But for all my problems with some of the Gungan stuff and some of the stuff here, the people who just put super cuts together of the mall fight and don't watch the rest, it, you know, you're really robbing yourself of the flow. Exactly. And, uh, you know, context is king, so... Oh, I love this. Woo! Dude, if there's one thing George Lucas has known how to do since 1977, it's fucking explosions. Mm-hmm. The Death Star explosion and the Alderaan explosion still look amazing. Oh, yeah, they do. No, this is pod racing. 
Yeah, I don't like that. Here we go. The other rebel pilots sell it to me, though, or whatever. The Republic pilots. Boom. Yep. And Lucas knows when to do partial explosions and not full explosions. Genius. And see, in the Clone Wars, we see the Trade Federation adapt to not rely on this control ship for the droids. But it doesn't even matter, because as we talked about, and maybe we'll talk about later, the Trade Federation is just a giant ploy to distract from what's really going on. Oh, I love oh, this. Yeah, this is so great. <laughs> By the way, a little note of Snoke here, right? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Or vice versa? Yeah. Boom. Uh, blood. Uh, it's, just, it's nothing but a scratch. <laughs> My young apprentice. Does Obi-Wan keep the green lightsaber? I I don't know. I don't know if it's... No, I don't think it does. I think, that we're, you know, the Jedi are not supposed to have attachments, so I don't think he kept it. Uh, okay. One of my favorite parts of Attack of the Clones is when he shoots the gun, and he's like, oh, how uncivilized. <laughs> I I think um, that, that that is... um. That is Revenge of the Sith. Well, there you but, go. <laughs> um, but anyways, I think uh, Qui-Gon is big... Um, with his lightsaber. I love this. Open, technically. I know this sounds horrible with all the people that die in Rogue One that we love, but I love how they just die. They get a couple words in, they just die. No long, dramatic speeches. Just kill them. It's it's so much more affecting. That's so sad that Qui-Gon just dies. Yeah, and I, I can't believe this film is already over. Well... We've got two minutes to go, but you know what I mean. I'm going to say it. This movie is a joy. Nope. Yeah. It, it. They're not kissing anything goodbye. Trust me. <laughs> I just... It, 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 this film deserves appreciation. You know, even if you don't like it, there are things that you can appreciate. If you can't have fun between the Jedi, Maul... Palpatine, the pod race, the space fighting, Natalie Portman. I mean, what are you going to the movies for? Honestly. Exactly. Oh my God, look at her. It's just like the only time we really see him smile, Palpatine. It's kind of creepy. So she looks a little suspicious here. I think one of the biggest writing mistakes is not having her be more suspicious of him as the episodes go along, but whatever. Okay, here we go. Here we go. So, if Yoda's in charge with Mace Windu and, the, and so forth, why can't they just say no to about the Padawan? Because I think that they know that Obi-Wan is going to do it anyway. He's going to do it with their blessing or not. Okay, so jump forward. Twin sons, older Obi-Wan, kills uh, Maul for the second and final time. Um, uh, Maul says, is he the chosen one? Obi-Wan says, yes. How do you interpret that? I think when it comes to the chosen one, I think it all is a matter. Your focus determines your reality. And I think 
it is a perception thing. I just I think it's just based on it just depends on the person whose perspective you are looking at. I think Obi Wan does believe that he is the chosen one, but is he objectively the chosen one? Yeah. I believe that the chosen one is a generational thing. I just think the dark ver- dark Sith virgins below them is just infecting all of their minds. It was a huge mistake for the Jedi to relocate to the capital in Coruscant, and that's part of why Yoda goes to the opposite place after that, which is Dagobah. Uh, which has virgences in the dark side of the force. It does, but it's mostly positive so virgences, well. yeah. Which is why he's able to hide so well, but... By the way... I, I, I gotta say really quick, Jaggy Girl, when Luke Skywalker's having the vision, he cuts off Darth Vader's head and then he sees his own face decapitated. It looks just like Ray. I mean, it looks exactly like Ray's face. It's crazy. You know, when I was younger, I did not know that that was supposed to be Luke's face. Because it doesn't look like it's- him. It looks like Ray. Go just watch that scene. It's crazy. Oh, here we go. Uh- here we go, celebration. So this sort of uh, orchestral mix with world music was pioneered at the end of The New Return of the Jedi, which I admit is a very emotional song, even though they sh- never needed to do it. I'm actually cool with this. Um, I don't know what the giant ball is that they hold at the end, but... What I really like about this film is it's exactly like A New Hope, where you could basically just watch the film and it can stand on its own. Every other film is kind of connected outside of Solo, maybe, yeah. and maybe a Rogue One, but it leads right into A New Hope. So, there, you know, the, you could basically... Yeah, yeah there, go ahead. There, I was just going to say, there was some funny memes uh, leading up to Infinity War about that orb being one of the Infinity Stones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I love the significance this moment has. It's the Gungans and the Naboo becoming one. Not a coincidence that this movie, while leading to the others, is also feels like a standalone with a happy ending and a celebration. Yep. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was The Phantom Menace. I hope you Creepy. enjoyed it. Creepy. Because I did. Here it comes. Beautiful. We did it. We did it. Man, I almost want to do Attack of the Clones now. Jesus. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, Judy, yeah. are you cool to rap for five or ten minutes on this? Yeah, I am. Okay. So, I always enjoy this film more than I think. And the, the annoying Anakin stuff is such a small amount of time and has nothing to do with the kid, you can easily overlook it. As I talked about, I like the Gungans. Jar Jar doesn't bother me. The stiff acting of some of the side characters, it doesn't even matter, because Padme and Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and so forth are overflowing with charisma. I think the big disappointment with Attack of the Clones had nothing to do with bad CGI. I think that people were actually into the characters they were building in this movie. And other than Obi-Wan, it felt like everyone took a step back in the second movie. Thoughts? Oh, I can totally agree with that perspective. I think one of the weakest points of Attack of the Clones is the acting and a little bit of the writing. But yeah, I I totally agree with what you're saying. And yeah, I'm trying to think about this film right now, how you were critically analyzed, how you were critically looking at it. And I can't really think of too many faults like I can with 
can with Attack of the Clones and even Revenge of the Sith with a, with a little bit. You know what I'm saying? So, I just think because the special effects look relatively so r- great. By the way, John Null, visual effects super, uh, they just said visual effects supervisor John Null. He's become one of the top executives, writers, and producers at um, uh, Disney. Do you know what his greatest contribution has been to the new Disney Star Wars project? No. It was his idea to do Rogue One as the first Star Wars story. Okay, okay. But he started, like many of them, lower on the chain. Like Pablo Hidalgo and everybody else, they work their way up. It's it's amazing. You do well by Lucasfilm, and they'll give you opportunities. Oh my God, Sofia Coppola, there's Keira Knightley. Uh, hold on, let's see if there's anyone else crazy. Jabba the Hutt himself. Jabba the Hutt himself. Uh-huh. James Taylor. I'm sure that's not James Taylor. Um... Okay, so final thoughts on this movie, and then we're going to tease the next couple weeks of the lore cast. Uh, totally underrated. Go back and rewatch it. The faults that you may have, while valid, uh, not as bad as what you think. I think the problems with the prequels are basically can be attributed to Attack of the Clones. I think that is the weakest film yeah. in not only the prequel trilogy, but the franchise as a whole. And I think people tend to call it the prequel trilogy with one big brush i think mm-hmm. if you look at the phantom menace on its own i think if you look at revenge of the sith on its own i think you would look back at the prequel trilogy a lot better mm-hmm. i think that this film has so many things going for it that i think if you can separate it and try to appreciate try to recognize that there are things that you can appreciate about this film i think you can appreciate it you may not like it but i definitely recommend going back and watching it because I'm sorry, but, you know, this is, it's a lot better movie than what people well, give it credit for. I also think, and this was great watching it with you, I think like A New Hope, this is the type of movie really you need to w- want to watch with other people to have fun, whereas, you know, you can really stew in the darkness and ar- artsiness of Empire Last Jedi and Rogue One. Not that you can't watch it with other people, but can also be a very personal experience. Um Whereas these kind of movies are really, like like I said, me and my friends, despite the flaws, and we were much older than you, went back over and over again to see this movie for the exciting parts of it. Um, the weird thing is, is that the CGI has aged better than it even seemed to look at the time. I'm not sure why that is. Um, maybe just because we've seen so much crappiness since then in the color, that just the color and the brightness and the three dimensionality really pops. And when you add, you know, the gorgeous faces from Ewan McGregor to Natalie Portman, that certainly helps, right? There was a couple moments where it did look a little glossy, but mm-hmm. not as bad as the special edition Jabba. No, 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 no. You know, so mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I just really, you know, and I think this will be a film that, as more time passes, people will appreciate. And oh my god. Oh my god, oh my god, I'm looking forward to celebration, 20th anniversary Woo! panel, please, <sighs> Lucasfilm, do it, please, because, <sighs> my childhood, you know? I mean, let's, let's, let's cut, let's cut the shit, as we say, okay? Kelly Marie Tran is in the perfect family environment to deal with the bullshit she's going through. And let's be honest, Daisy Ridley never faced quite what Kelly's going through, but she also went off social media for similar reasons. 
Um, and I think they're going to help work through this, but they need to convince Natalie over the next year that not only is that that sort of stuff not going to happen, but she's going to get like a 15 minute standing ovation when she shows up. Because honestly, Jedi geek girl, I think she would. Now I got a question for you. Do they think do they promote it or do they have it as a surprise? Promote what? Well, if when Natalie Portman returns to Star Wars at Celebration, should they announce it ahead of time like they did Haydenson, or should they do it as a surprise like George Lucas last year? I think they tease enough information to make it seem like it's pretty likely without openly confirming it, is what I think. Okay, so maybe like leak a tease, but although, not officially announce it. Although the fact that it's already sold out for the five-day pass and it will be completely sold out well before then, they might just leak it straight up because everyone who's going has their tickets already and we know <laughs> that the positivity side of Star Wars are the people going to Celebration. So they might just... I think they maybe announce it a month or two before it happens. I think no matter when or if they announce it, the crowd is still going to pop, but it might be a little bit louder if it, if it is a surprise. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. if you go back and you watch videos of Lucas appearing at Celebration last year, there was people that were so excited they could not contain themselves, mm-hmm. where you could still get that excitement when you have Natalie show up with being her being announced, but I think it would be a lot more how do I put this ecstatic reaction if if it is a surprise? Yeah, I just hope her. I mean, here's the problem: Natalie Portman does not like um, being in public. Her, like, if you ever see late night interviews, they're so awkward with her. Um, there's certain actresses and Hathaways like this that, that just they don't like the spotlight and. So as long as people don't expect her to give some like long, you know, charismatic speech and her just sort of hang out, you know, Daisy Ridley's like this too. It's the opposite of Felicity Jones who loves the fans and loves celebrating and partying with the fans. Natalie's not like that. And and Hayden was pretty reserved as well. So if people are cool with her just hanging out, giving people hugs, waving, the whole signing, whatever, then I think it'll be great. And I think the positivity meter for Star Wars is going to recover insanely well over the next year leading up to Celebration. I don't think that these actresses and actors owe anything to us, the fans, or Star Wars, but... I do think that the they played such iconic characters that it is nice seeing them come back to acknowledge these roles because maybe their careers aren't tied to it, but it no. is an important role. You know what I'm she saying? She doesn't owe us anything. The reason exactly. she should go is so that 30,000 Star Wars fans can ap- express how much they love and appreciate her. After all this time, that's why she she should go for her is the thing. I I, I agree one hundred percent. But what I'm trying to say is, is no matter what people think of the prequel trilogy, yep. she will always be Padme. You know. Yep. Yeah, and that that is the thing. I, okay, so I have two more questions for you, and I'll give you the last word. So. First question um, is, I'll start with an observation, which is the one thing I did like about her stepping down from being the queen was she just got to be Padme. 
um, um, in the final two movies. I, I just don't think, you know, I think the Padme in Clone Wars and Forces of Destiny is clearly much cooler than the writing that she got in episode two and episode three. I, I'm sorry. I just think that's the reality. Um, I agree. I agree. Uh, I do think, though, that that last third or last half of Attack of the Clones, mm-hmm. her portrayal, and, and even, you know, a little bit because, you know, she has agency. Mm-hmm. She has a voice, you know. Yeah. Not as much as the, the Phantom Menace, but, you know, a lot better than Revenge of the Sith. And by the way, she's also been in Thor, and she has admitted that she has lots of problems acting in non-practical locations, green screens, CGI. Like, she doesn't hide from it. And and the thing is, she tries to do these projects every decade or so to challenge herself, but her best roles, whether she's playing Jackie Onassis Kennedy or in Black Swan, are very realistic, gritty roles. Honestly, do you know what my, my favorite Natalie movie is V for Vendetta? Yep, 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 yep. And that was the movie that, quote-unquote, saved her career after she got bashed from the prequels, which was an extremely dark, gritty movie where she got to play a very complicated character. And even though it was sci-fi, with the mask that Hugo Weaving was wearing, and it was all like knives and sets, and it was all very real, the prison that she was put in by him, you know, like, she just does better. And I don't think actresses should be faulted for that. Like, not everyone is Scarlett Johansson, black widow can just act in any environment you know um oh yeah so okay so my first question is what's one thing you would advise me to go into the attack of the clones commentary with simmy in order to try and get some more positivity uh out of it other than just obi-wan being great and some cool natalie stuff are you saying which thing about it that as i would say the imagery I think it's beautiful for it. A lot of the imagery is CGI, but it's very... One of the things that I like about the prequel trilogy is that they're all visually so unique compared to each other that they pretty much stand out on their own. I would basically try to appreciate the world building it is setting up for the Clone Wars, the epic moment that it is creating for the universe, because even though some of the execution isn't great, I think it is very important for what it does because it's... Be- to attack the clones that you know we get the clone wars and it, it, there's a lot of roots that you know it builds i guess mm-hmm. all right one more question and then uh i will give you final thought and we'll head out my fun so I, you know so guys so jedi geek girl and i are really going to make an opportunity to record every sunday night lore cast presented by the bizzle cast about different topics sometimes we'll do commentaries Sometimes we'll talk about other things. And Jedi Geek Girl, I, I just, I have to ask why, what, what drove you to rewatch Rogue One last night and what hit you about it that made you, to tease the people for next week, what hit you about it that not only bumped it up your list a couple spots, but made you want to talk about it next week? So last night, I was feeling like I was itching to watch something. I was feeling like I could watch something while multitasking because I had to get work done for Ivy Bell, my podcast, and I wanted to 
put something on in the background instead of focus. I don't know. There was just something strange about it. I thought about rewatching The Phantom Menace, but I'm like, no, I want to save it for the commentary. And then I'm like, I'm like, okay, what can I watch? And then, of course, you come to mind. And I'm like, you know what? I'll watch Rogue One because if I start with A New Hope, I'm going to want to watch the prequel. I'm going to want to watch the whole original trilogy. And it just was the one film. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to watch, rewatch The Last Jedi because I kind of want to do a back-to-back with The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, I am going to watch Rogue One. And what really grew on me about Rogue One, and to give a bit of a tease, is what was my one problem with Solo? Um, too much fan service? Uh, the other problem. Um, uh, I don't know. I can't remember. What do I love about The Last Jedi? Lightsabers? Hey, um, <laughs> the, the emotion, the attachment. Oh, wasn't super and high stakes, yeah. No, not high stakes. Okay, so what I like about The Last Jedi mm-hmm. and Rogue One is you're constantly being hit by emotional moments that you are invested in. Like in The Last Jedi, you have Paige dying. You have Leia being shot out of the thing. You have Luke Skywalker dying. You have Kylo Ren calling to Rey and breaking Rey's heart. In Rogue One, you have Jin's mother dying. Mom you dies. Have, yep, dies. Yep. Yep. You have her reunion with her father. You oh. have her pre-reunion with her father. You have the whole Rogue One crew falling. So... I was constantly being drawn into the film emotionally. And I told you that the films that I can connect with and get invested in are going to stick with me a lot more than films that do not, you know? Absolutely. And I'm going to be perfect. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Um, Right now I have Rogue One at the top, then Force Awakens, and then I have Last Jedi a little below that, and then Solo. But... I, I think in the long run, Last Jedi <clears throat> will will come above Force Awakens um, because of the deep issues, the emotionality, Princess Leia, the, you know, the, the, the big three. Uh, I mean, I, look, let's put it this way. I think Rogue One is consistently awesome from beginning to end, but the highest highs, like the highs of Last Jedi, are untouched by anything we've seen in the new movies. Yeah, I can completely agree with that. For me, when it comes to the new films, it is The Last Jedi, Rogue One, The Force Awakens, Solo. Mm-hmm. So, uh, just a tease, and then we'll close out. What is what was one moment or one character in this particular watching of Rogue One that kind of jumped out at you and you weren't expecting to hit you so hard? Well, with the emotional beat of Rogue One, I know what's going to connect with me. A lot of what I noticed during this last viewing was Just the subtleness of uh, of the acting, mm-hmm. and being able to appreciate the mo- the moments that when it happens, when you first watch a film, like when I watch Solo, it all moved pretty quickly. Yeah. And when I first watched Rogue One, 
I couldn't, I did connect, but I couldn't, didn't connect without the books and the comics. But during this last viewing, I found myself, yes, I know the story, I know the books, and I know the comics, but I was able to attach to the story and attach to the characters without having to fall back on supporting material. Like, when I was watching Rogue One this last time, I wasn't thinking about Catalyst yep. or Rebel Rising. Yeah, yeah so. this has always been my thing, is I am, first of all, A, a believer that a film should always stand on its own, especially Star Wars films. But B, I do understand that people like Jin and everyone more after reading the secondary material. I loved her and the crew before I read any of the secondary materials, but I get that that helped the experience. And when I finally did read some of that stuff, it informed and, you know, and fleshed it out and so forth. Um, but to me, Jin watching Father's Hologram is maybe the best, like, pure emotional performance we've seen in Star Wars. And oh, I, I, I know I joke about being in love with Felicity Jones and Jen Erso, and I am, but honestly, I was just bowled over in that scene with her watching her father and the emotion slowly, the storm building, the storm building, the tears coming and then dropping to her knees. Mm-hmm. It just, it, and then mirrored mm-hmm. when she does get to see him and then he just dies and then that launching into it. Um, but I also think, I think you'll agree with this too, the subtle journey, the subtle but important journey that Cassian takes, mm-hmm. where you can see how tormented he is from the beginning. He doesn't want to do this, and he does it because he's been fighting in the rebellion since he's six years old, as he said, but because of the, what he goes through and Jin and the whole crew, and how about them calling her little sister, and she, mm-hmm. she grabs Chirrut's hand. I mean... I, I, honestly, I think part of the reason I have Rogue One is one is it makes me cry at least once or twice, either from happiness or sadness or both, every single time I watch it. Um, oh, oh, like three or four times yeah. for me. I don't want to drill upon it too much, but I do want to touch upon two things that I noticed in this last viewing. Number one is Beige calling. It is Beige that calls mm-hmm. Jen little sister. I never noticed that before. Yep. And that really connected for me. The second thing is it's not so much something I noticed, but my reaction to it. So when they are on Jetta and they're in the prisoner cell, and it's somebody says, I think it's Cassian, about the Imperial pilot in the cell next to him. And Beige is like, let me at him. I, I, I just, I thought that was funny because, you know, he he's like a... Um, a piss vinegar male type, you know, let, let me add him, you know, he's the enemy, you know, so I, 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 don't know, I don't know. I just got a kick out of it. So I think the, 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 the best line in the movie and maybe the, my favorite line in star Wars is, um, Cassine's trying to get them out in that scene. And Chirrut says, don't worry, captain, we've been in worse prisons than this. And Cassine says, uh, this is a first for me. And Chirrut says, there's more than one kind of prison captain. I sense that you carry yours wherever you go. I'm like, oh, like he sums him up. He's a prisoner of his own mind. And Cassian knows that, you know, I just I love that interplay. And I just want to say this just just when we're going to wrap up. Yeah, I think that is something that can be applied in life. And one of the things I recognized in my latest viewing is that this film, Rogue One, 
is so applicable in real time that I was able to connect. It was ahead of its time. But I'm going to wrap up on the Rogue One talk because yeah. otherwise we can go for another Yeah, yeah, hours. yeah. Give us final so, thoughts about w- w- this. So your last thoughts, please, on The Phantom Menace before I give my last thoughts. I mean, you know, this was a case of blatant nostalgia, me loving it at initial viewings, and then... The thing is, I don't think I'd fully made up my mind, but then I'll keep the short jet I geek girl. But in 1999, some of the greatest films of my generation, including The Matrix, Talented Mr. Ripley, American Beauty, which won the Academy Award, and Fight Club, these great films all came out that year. And then The Matrix sequels and The Lord of the Rings movies. So I wasn't sure what to think of The Phantom Menace. And so by the time Attack of the Clones came out, I went with my parents, having not seen it first. And I was like almost embarrassed, honestly. I was like, not embarrassed, but I was like, this was the one Star Wars movie I'm not sure I should have dragged my parents to. By the time Revenge of the Sith came out, I was graduating college, you know, working with African musicians, traveling around the world. And so I didn't fully appreciate it. But then I came back to Revenge of the Sith. And then I ultimately really appreciate The Phantom Menace for what it was. Um, and I, I think it's a super fun ride. I, like I said before, I think this is a great movie, like A New Hope, an uplifting, fun Star Wars adventure to, to watch with, with friends, honestly. And I'm, I was just really happy to watch it with you. My last thoughts on this film before I wrap up is this is definitely a film that I think people need to revisit. You don't have to like it. You don't have to appreciate it. You don't have to rewatch it anytime. But I think this is a film that will age really well. I think talking to people who has gone back and rewatched this film, I think that there is more to the film than people first originally thought was in the film. Mm-hmm. And even talking to somebody in my latest episode of Ivy Bell who saw the film that was younger than I did, he was able to appreciate things from a new lens. And I do recommend if you didn't go back and watch this film and just listen to our commentary to please, please do so because a film can be horrible during the first viewing. But if you go back and watch it 20 years later, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? It, it's mm-hmm. a different perspective and it's an appreciation. Like how many cult classic films... And I'm sure you can name a bunch. I'm not asking you to. But how many cult classic films can you name that started out as being critically received not well, bombed at the box office, and was just dismissed that are now cult classic? Well, this did not bomb. This made over a billion dollars in 1999. Well, I'm just using that as an example. But I mean, look, look, what is like one of the first shots of The Clone Wars? is them just jumping straight into the battle during the Clone Wars. I think that was the biggest mistake if they had just made the attack of the... Here's the thing, Jaggy Girl. Other than the transformation into Vader, the main thing people were excited about with the prequels was seeing the Clone Wars. And Mm -hmm. the fact that Lucas didn't give it to us... Um, it was a problem. And I think if you had just dropped young Hayden Christensen, like we saw in the Clone Wars, just straight into the shit, and it was like a war movie, like Rogue One style, it, it would have done wonders for everything. But turning, trying to turn Attack of the Clones into just a nonsensical adventure um, that was all over the place for no reason really interrupted the flow. And I think, unlike... <coughs> The original trilogy. And, and I'm going to go on the limb thinking that JJ's episode 9 is going to be great, unlike the new trilogy. 
the original trilogy is marred by the weak middle movie, and it's a shame because the first and the third are really great. I think that would definitely be interesting, but it we didn't get that. What we got is what we got, and I think that I'm I am appreciative of the boldness that George Lucas took with the Phantom Menace. I think he could have easily done the approach that you stated and the fans really like, but it's interesting, it's new, and we got to see Padme, you know, and this setting, and it's, it's very unique, you know what I'm saying? It, it the, fan, the Phantom Menace is so unique that, you know, you have episode two and episode three, you have the original trilogy, and of course you have all the other stuff, where the Phantom Menace is this movie that can pretty much stand out on its own, kind of. Yep. In a way that no other film really could, at least when it comes mm-hmm. to Lucasfilm. So, I appreciate that. But, you know. Yeah, yeah. The only thing I'll say is, you know, I, I think movies rise or fall on the comfort um, and the feeling of putting in a good performance by the best actors. And for whatever reason, Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan continued to feel more comfortable as the movies went along, and Natalie felt less comfortable. She's talked about it. Um, and it's nobody's fault, <laughs> you know? It's not like a blame thing, you know? It just doesn't always happen the way we want to. But these are historical, you know, r- records and archives that, that we do need to respect and revisit. So I'm totally on board with that. I can't wait to talk Rogue One next week, and I really can't wait. Guys, the uh, uh, t- extra teaser. In two weeks, we're going to be talking about Maul, Ahsoka, and our theories about Siege of Mandalore, Obi-Wan movies, and so forth, right? I think so? Oh, yeah, and, and definitely, and I cannot wait, wait, but until then, you know, I had a blast doing this, and we can keep talking, and I'm having so much doing this, but Thank you so much for having me on. If, if our listeners would like to find me, they can find me on Twitter at Jedi Geek Girl. They can find my podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash Disney. They can find my website at ivybell.com. Mm. Oops, sorry. I'm Disney.com, And they can send me an email at ivybelldestiny.com. Thank you so much for having me on, Bizzle. And Jedi Geek Girl, out. <laughs>